This is a Future Cannabis Project podcast. Welcome to Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. Let's go ahead and jump into it. It is uh, a grow and tell. And so uh, for those who've never joined us before, Hote to Herbs Grow and Tells are a, um, an event. Uh, it was a monthly gathering of cannabis growers that I <laughs> started uh, a couple of years ago. And we were all getting together before COVID and uh, sniffing each other's jars and smoking each other's weed and uh, talking about how we grew it and, and the different breeders and, and the different strains and cultivars we were growing and um, different techniques and had different speakers coming in. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we had to, uh, had to end that series due to COVID and some of the other stuff going on, but uh, great, really, really excited to have this series going on again. This is our third episode of uh, Hot Herbs Grow and Tell on Clubhouse and the Future Cannabis Project. So I really, before we get going, I want to thank Peter uh, for uh, helping encourage me to get uh, the Grow and Tells going again. And um, I uh, want to sh- quick shout out to all my uh, Grow and Tell family out there in the Worcester area, uh, Summit Lounge and uh, Skunk Beard and, and some of the other great folks that used to come by all the time to those events. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about carbon, the forgotten macronutrient. And um, this is a this is a great topic. I um, you know every time we uh, anybody talks about micro macronutrients and micronutrients and they start the conversation around NPK and everybody's favorite uh, whipping boy CalMag and um, all these uh, you know primary thirteen or so micro and macronutrients that everybody focuses on. And there's so much more going on. Uh, it always makes me think about Dr. Elaine Ingham and 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 her, uh, you know, how she basically lectures on the fact that it's not just those thirteen uh, cannabis, well, not just cannabis plants, but plants in general are probably using almost everything that's on the periodic table in some way, shape, or form. And um, one of the things that always gets, uh, that nobody ever really talks about, unless we're talking about, uh, you know, the impact of growing hemp on the, on the planet and the environment, is carbon. Um, not necessarily, you know, we usually talk about carbon sequestration and the ability of uh, plants to hold carbon. Um, but I think there's, uh, there's a lot more <laughs> to talk about when we start talking about uh, carbon metabolism and um, how, uh, you know, compared to other macro nutrients, um, you could take, and, and we were talking about this earlier today, how you could take of the NPK, other all the other nutrients, and multiply that by five, and there's still more carbon. Um, so carbon is such a big part of the picture, and, and so I think it's an awesome topic to get going on tonight. Um, and so that's where we'll go ahead and kick it off. So uh, Nick, let's talk about carbon, uh, carbon metabolism, and the fact that you know carbon is really the number one macronutrient. Plant. So part of this to kind of take one step back and to look at uh, macronutrients in general, like what is a macro and why is it defined? 
to be a macronutrient. You know, if your plants take up calcium, for example, and you can detect that calcium in the cell walls or in the actual structure of the plant, maybe in the stalks and the stems, there's pieces of calcium that get deposited. So of course, it's easy to think about calcium as a nutrient because it actually becomes a constituent of the plant matter itself. The same thing is true with nitrogen and some of the other elements, maybe potassium and sulfur are more useful for like their electrochemical properties rather than their structural properties. But even silica, you know, it's useful uh, because it's a structural aid and it can save the plant, uh, you know, a, a lot of carbon basically, which represents potential energy. So that's one way of looking at it. The other more introductory way of looking at it is, you know, even if you don't have a highly advanced uh, degree in botany or something like that, you can still kind of like generally speaking, understand what photosynthesis is all about, right? The plants take energy from the light, they split a molecule of water and they suck CO2 out of there. That's the kind of like general premise. But if we kind of look under the hood and we look more specifically, what we're going to find is that these macronutrients like nitrogen and magnesium and phosphorus, well, those are really just tools that plants use to capture carbon or to store that carbon or to move that carbon around or to somehow do something with carbon. And so when we're talking about macronutrients, really it's carbon first and then everything else revolves around carbon. And I'll give you guys a kind of an easy bite-sized uh, piece of information to understand about that. If you're in your garden and you notice that your leaves are yellowing, you may look at the leaf and the plant and say it's got a nitrogen deficiency. And let's just say hypothetically it does have a nitrogen deficiency. So when you add more nitrogen, the, the leaf color comes back. It goes from pale and yellow. It comes back being darker green. Well, why is that? What's going on in the plant? Um, chlorophyll obviously is being produced. And chlorophyll, the whole function and purpose of chlorophyll is to capture energy from the sun. That's the pigment that responds to the sunlight. So the, the subtle part there is to look at nitrogen. When you add nitrogen to the plants, they say, great, thanks. You've given me nitrogen. Now I'm going to use this to capture more energy from the sun. And it's a night and day difference, you know, between a deficiency and a proficiency. Your, your plants will, you know, be pale and, and light yellow and they're not going to grow very well versus they're going to be nice and green and flushed and they're going to be able to take up a lot of other nutrients as well. So there's the, the kind of push-pull cycle as you push more nitrogen onto the plants, it kind of pulls the plant in a state of higher productivity. Well, what is all of that productivity revolving around if not for capturing carbon out of the air? You know, that's why... Um, uh, chlorophyll pigment will uh, absorb energy from the sun. It's, it wants to convert that light energy into chemical energy because that conversion allows growth to happen. Otherwise, the plant would not be able to convert the light energy and, and photons coming in from the sun into something that's like biomass, you know, terpenes and cannabinoids, things like that. So this process of conversion has to occur. And what happens is the CO2 comes in from the leaves, just like the light, the water comes up from the roots, and as the plants drink the water, they split that water molecule in half, basically. They keep the hydrogen, and they let go of the oxygen. And this is how, as everyone learned in kindergarten and probably elementary school, you know, quote-unquote, plants breathe oxygen. And this is the sort of mechanism by which they do it. They take up water, they split that water, they keep the hydrogen because it's a proton pump. That hydrogen is like an acid. It's uh, that That's the interface of the uh, electrochemical sort of uh, potential of a plant. So when they split that hydrogen and they generate the reduction power needed 
to scrub CO2 out of there, that's when they can start to harvest some of that energy there. You know, and nitrogen, for example, in the form of chlorophyll, also magnesium, which happens to sit at the dead center of chlorophyll, that's actually the element that accepts energy from the light. And so here you go. Here's another example. If you give your plants more magnesium, suppose they're deficient in magnesium, the first thing they're going to do is take that magnesium and put it into uh, proteins and enzymes whose job it is to capture energy so that they can get more carbon because that's all what plants do. It, it revolves entirely around carbon metabolism. Even something like phosphorus, you know, phosphorus as the energy currency, quote unquote, of a plant. Um, it's used to drive certain types of reactions. And if you look specifically at how phosphorus interacts with CO2 in the air, as a particle of CO2 in the air floats around, the active site of, you know, plants have this, uh, this uh, enzyme that converts CO2 from the air into a sugar, basically. It's a sort of a complex process, but that enzyme Rubisco is the most abundant uh, enzyme arguably on the planet. So it's not it's something plants produce in, in massive quantities. It's a very, very abundant protein. Um, but again, you have magnesium sitting at the active site of that enzyme. And its job is to help convert CO2 from the air into a carbohydrate. And that carbohydrate conversion process opens up a whole world of opportunities for plants because sugar, for example, like sucrose, simple sugars, those are very soluble in water. And so when the plant has to move stuff around, and it has access to water coming in through the roots, it can start to hydrate some of that carbon, create carbohydrates, and then move those carbohydrates around as sugars to then become fuel sources and food sources for microbes and for fungi and for, you know, things like that. Yeah, I really like, um, you know, I think that, that brings up something that I really, um, I really, I think is super important and, and, and like to pay attention to. And I think it's something that we, um, we as a society tend not to do necessarily is we tend to look at a problem or we um, try to isolate a portion of a system that may seem like it's not functioning <clears throat> like you were saying you know you have some yellowing leaves and so we like oh it's nitrogen um, but the reality is in many cases um, there is not just one thing that's causing the problem there's this uh, connectivity between things between systems uh, one thing doesn't function without the other uh, you know having the nitrogen alone does nothing um, as as you were you know as we were talking about earlier the, the, does absolutely nothing unless you have the carbon there uh, to convert it over to an amino acid into a protein so you, so you need that um, there's a there's a connectivity there's a you can't just address one part of a system and expect everything to improve you have to look at the whole system and understand how these pieces are connected and where those um, issues might be coming from. Um, you know, environmental issues can make your plants look like you're having a deficiency and it has nothing to do with the amount of nitrogen you might have available to that plant. It's just that the temperatures aren't cooperating. And so the plant is appearing as though it's having a deficiency when it's having a reaction to the environment stimulus as opposed to the actual uh, presence 
of uh, nutrients. Um, so yeah, having that uh, understanding of that connectivity of those channels of how um, you know these elements are basically useless without carbon to help them uh, be converted or transformed or um, uh, allowed to you know accelerate that nutrients uptake. Yeah, yeah, and that carbon is is really fascinating because you know when plants take up water, what they're trying to do is split that water and generate a reduction power, basically from the hydrogen that comes out of the water. So that reduction power. Um, think about it like dollars in your wallet, you know, you only have so many dollars to spend. And just like the plants, they only have so much chemical energy that they can put into certain processes. Now, if you look at nitrogen, um, one of the forms of nitrogen that plants take up is nitrate. The other is ammoniacal, which forms that amine group, which becomes a constituent or the head group of an amino acid, which we'll kind of get into here in a second. But the thing about nitrates is their chemical formula is NO3. So they have no uh, hydrogen and they only have oxygen. So those represent two sort of opposite ends of a spectrum. One is fully reduced, the hydrogen. The second is fully oxidized, meaning that there's a lot of oxygen present. So when we're talking about nitrates, that's NO3, fully oxidized. When we're talking about sulfates, like magnesium sulfate, Epsom salt, uh, potassium sulfate, uh, that's SO4. And even when we're talking about CO2, well, again, we have oxygen, but no hydrogen. So this is a problem for plants. They're looking at these nutrients that are fully oxidized. They're not useful quite yet. They need to be converted because upon reduction, chemical reduction, these things become useful. The easiest way to look at it is with the conversion of nitrogen into amino acids, which then give rise to proteins and chlorophyll and green pigments and all kinds of good stuff. Um, but what happens is the plants start off with NO3 and they have to figure out what's the pathway to get some hydrogen attached to that nitrate because the amine group, which makes up amino acids, doesn't have any oxygen. It's, it's NH4, um, as opposed to NO3. So you got to replace three oxygens with, uh, four hydrogen somehow. And that comes from splitting water. You can get you know, if you split two molecules of water, you've got your four hydrogens. So let's just say, you know, hypothetically, just for the purpose of this thought experiment here, you give the plant two molecules of water, it splits those two molecules of water, about four hydrogen dollars, so to speak, to spend. Now you've given the plant a choice. Do you want CO2 out of the air? Do you want sulfate in the form of SO4? Or do you want nitrate in the form of NO3? If the plant takes the nitrate for whatever reason, it starts to cleave off that oxygen and replace it with hydrogen. And this is a chemical conversion that requires a lot of energy for the plants. Um, upon conversion, you have the amine group, and then that is plugged in physically to what's called an organic acid skeleton. Um, these organic acid skeletons are typically generated when carbohydrates produced by the plant through photosynthesis, when those are broken down and actually used as a fuel source, they give rise to these organic acid skeletons, organic acid residues, those are physically plugged in uh, to the amine group. And that's hence the name amine O acid. The O acid is for organic acid. So, you know, here's a process by which the plant has successfully split some water, generated some uh, electrochemical currency, and then managed to convert a macronutrient that it needed. But let's just say hypothetically, the plant didn't convert nitrate and it wanted to convert carbon from CO2 into let's say a monoterpene 
because if you look at the chemical formula for monoterpenes, there's 10 atoms of carbon, so it's C10, and then there's 16 atoms of hydrogen, so it's C10H16. You won't find any oxygen whatsoever inside of a, a monoterpene. So again, here's the problem is how does the plant go from CO2, which is a single monomer of carbon, it's just got one of those carbons, and two oxygens, and it somehow has to get enough carbon to then make something that's 10 carbons and 16 hydrogens. So it's got to do a lot of work. And along the way, as these terpenes are being produced, think about where they're being produced. They're being produced in the outermost layer of the plant's uh, cells, you know, the trichomes, the glandular trichomes. Those physically stick out of the leaf surface, and those are exposed to the environment. Well, we live on planet Earth, and, you know, there's a lot of oxygen in the air. And so this compound that the plants are trying to make these monoterpenes, they're fully reduced. They're actually pretty sensitive to oxidation. You know, the off-gassing of the terps, the volatility. The volatile nature comes from the interaction of these fully reduced carbon units and oxygen. The oxygen is the thing that drives the changes through oxidation. And so plants have to figure out a way, how do I stop or prevent this oxidation from occurring because I've got this fully reduced carbon compound and I don't want it to be oxidized. So plants have figured out ways to make antioxidants, for example, that help them go through the process of keeping their carbon in a reduced form, right? They, they worked hard to get that electrochemical energy. They reduced the carbon. The last thing they want to have happen is for all of the oxygen that's present in this atmosphere to overwhelm and to completely oxidize all of the carbon that they worked so hard to, to reduce and to store and to capture. So um, I hope that makes sense, at least with the carbon and the nitrogen piece. We didn't get into the um, sulfate, the conversion of sulfates, but I suppose just real quick to cap it off, um, <clears throat> sulfates are converted. Ironically enough, the, the sulfates um, are used by plants for their ability to prevent oxidative reactions. So they become the sort of the core constituent of antioxidant enzymes, sulfates do, uh, upon their reduction, um, which also requires chemical energy. So again, if you've only got a limited amount of chemical currency and you have a choice between carbon, sulfur, nitrogen, and perhaps some other fully oxidized elements, you know, the plant has to do uh, what it's capable of doing. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, that's, that's awesome. I, we, uh, you know, I, I, you know, something that you mentioned a couple times that I think we want to make sure that uh, we cover is the fact that, you know, pretty much everything that uh, the plant makes uh, you know, anything that is something that the plant makes, whether it's leaves, stems, pigments, aromas, terpenes, physical structures of any kind, all require carbon uh, to make that happen. That, you know, without carbon, there is no, uh, there are no leaves to, you know, that's why there's so much carbon in the leaves and the stems and everything. It's all part of the creation of those structures. Yeah. Yeah. And like we were kind of getting at, there's all these like subtle things that are sort of, you know, they're easy to understand, but they require a lifetime of pursuit to actually have that little aha moment where, you know, how could I have missed it? It was so obvious. Um, Rubisco and chlorophyll are two good examples again, because they're some of the most uh, abundant proteins and enzymes on the planet. Obviously the, the color green defines plant life. Um, without it, you know, it'd be, the world would be much different. So the one job that chlorophyll has is to capture energy from the sun. Well, what, what, what for? And again, it's this reduction power to scrub CO2 out of the air. 
So it seems like everything plants do revolves around carbon acquisition. And like you mentioned, the colors that plants produce these pigments, for example, uh, the aromas, the flavors, the, you know, everything that a plant can do is going to require carbon. It's just not possible to talk about um, plants producing something that has no carbon, at least not that I'm familiar with. I haven't seen any inorganic substance produced by plants. Um, and terpenes are actually a really good example. You know, we probably could have started off this conversation with the following statement, but, um, you know, terpenes are all your monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes, every single one that you could ever get analyzed at a lab. Those are all 90% carbon and all cannabinoids are roughly 80% carbon. So here we've got two classes of compounds that pretty much define commercial and medical cannabis cultivation. You know, these are the therapeutic compounds. These are the medicinal compounds. These are the compounds that consumers go to the stores. They look at the test results and they say, I want that one versus the other one. Why? Well, because one had more carbon than the other. If you have, you know, test results that indicate, let's just say hypothetically somewhere around you know, 8% terpenes on dry flour and 35-ish percent total cannabinoids on that dry flour. Um, that's a lot of carbon. You know, you can do the math and try to figure out, well, how much carbon was sunk. The flour is 35%. Cannabinoids and cannabinoids are 80% carbon. So that's a lot of carbon right there, just right off the rip. And then monoterpenes are about 90%. And we've got terpenes on that flour that's about 8%. So we're looking at a substantial amount of carbon. And if you just kind of do the rough math, it ends up being about a third of the overall biomass is just a single element. And this is kind of what I was getting at earlier. And Jason also mentioned is that you can take all your NPKs, you can take all the CalMags, none of that stuff goes into a single atom or single molecule of THC or a single terpene. There is no NPK inside of any of that. So it's kind of misleading to think you know, like I got to get more terpenes out of my plants and more cannabinoids. How do I do that? Well, let me add some CalMag. You know, it's a little bit of a running joke, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 there's no mechanical, there's no actual benefit there. They are 90%, uh, 80 to 90% carbon by weight. So really it's a function of how much carbon did you give your plant? Right. How do I load carbon? How do I get as much carbon as possible into the plant? That's what we need to be thinking. We need to change our thought process there is how do we increase carbon intake and uptake? How do we get as much carbon as possible? Yeah. Yeah. And along those lines, you know, you mentioned it earlier, it's all about this connective tissue. I mean, carbon is the sort of the balancing or the buffering element that plants rely on for everything that they do. So if you're a commercial grower, and you're growing indoors, let's say you have an understanding of how intense your lights are. Let's say you're around 1,000 to 1,200 micromoles of light intensity. You know the EC of your fertilizer going in, and you know the PPMs of CO2 in your room, right? For most, uh, you know, for most advanced cultivators, this is kind of the bread and butter. They're looking at input EC, runoff EC, same thing with pH. They've got, a, let's say, a handful, maybe a dozen or so variables that they're actively monitoring. So, the, the most important ones will be how much light are you giving your plants, how much water are you giving your plants, and then how much food are you giving your plants. Um, obviously, when I say water, I mean feed water, and then food, I mean carbon in the form of CO2, because that's the actual, that's the bulk of what plants ultimately are. So let's just say hypothetically, you're a grower, and you're first getting used to the sealed flowering room, and you crank up the light intensity, and someone comes along and says, hey, your plants look a little deficient. The lights are really strong. I bet you you could crank up your food, and they would respond. So you crank up the food. Sure enough, the plants respond. 
because if you give them more intense lights, they can handle a higher feed. Alternatively, if your plants looked a little bit stressed and you didn't want to feed them heavier, you could pull them uh, away from the lights. That way they get less intense uh, light shining on them. And that will also do the same thing because you lowered the light intensity. The plants had a chance to kind of correct their growth and balance things out. So yeah, on the it goes back to those limiting factors, right? Um, you can't, uh, you have to increase all aspects if you're trying to get yield. You can't just necessarily increase one aspect of your overall environment, light, water, nutrients, uh, the, the five factors, uh, CO2. Um, I always forget the fifth one, but yeah, you, you have to do it in balance. And, and just by increasing one, what that does is it puts stress on the others. And for you to actually gain the value of increasing your light or increasing the amount of nutrients you're pumping in, you actually have to increase some of those other factors equally or enough to compensate. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the uh, tricks, I guess, that a lot of growers don't realize is possible is, I mean, think about your plant much like a car motor. You've got spark, you've got an air fuel ratio, and then you've got to haul the exhaust out. So in a sealed flowering room, it's just like that. And a lot of guys have run into a situation where they have their metrics dialed in in a sealed flowering room. They know they can only push the plant so hard, but there's always that one event that pops up someone overfed the plants they fed them too heavy you know maybe it was 25 percent heavier of a feed mix than what was initially called for so at this point a lot of people would freak out they'd say oh crap i fed my plants way too hot they're going to burn they're going to get crispy if you understand carbon and carbon chemistry in the plants that doesn't have to happen you can crank up the co2 and the plants will buffer out all of that again going back to our topic about nitrates being converted into uh, amino acids, you know, it requires water. So presumably if you fed them really heavy, you also watered them. So there's that. The inorganic mineral-based fertilizer, if you're using a salt-based fertilizer and that has nitrates inside of it, that's going to work its way up the xylem tissue. And if you've cranked up the CO2 gas, that nitrate meets the CO2 in the middle and the plant will be able to make an amino acid. Whereas if you don't, if you simply overfeed the plants and you do not crank up the CO2, you will burn your plants. You will get the toxicity. You will get that happening because the plants don't have a buffer. They don't have anything that will chemically balance out that excess mineral load. Uh, another way of uh, visualizing what I'm talking about too is let's say you go the opposite direction. Let's say instead of overfeeding, let's say you underfeed. Your plants in a high CO2 environment with high light intensity, your plants will immediately become deficient. They immediately crave more macronutrients. Well, why is that? Because they have access to a lot of carbon and they need more tools to process that carbon. They need more nitrogen to make the chlorophyll. They need the magnesium for those enzymes. They need the phosphorus for the phosphate sugars. They need the potassium for the electrolyte. They need all of these things to kind of come together and be kind of connected on the back end so that this grand task of sucking carbon out of the air and making things like monoterpenes, which are 90% carbon, the rest of the the other 10%, by the way, is hydrogen. It comes from the plant splitting water. So that's what the plant is trying to achieve overall. And if you understand carbon and how it connects all of the macro and micronutrients on the back end, um, you're going to benefit quite a bit as a commercial grower, especially because if you solve this issue of how do I get more carbon into my plants, you're going to end up with higher concentrations of terpenes and cannabinoids, which is ultimately what people are looking to achieve in either the medical or the recreational markets.
but it's not just that, you know, it's not just um, the secondary metabolite thing. The carbon is also a primary thing. If you look at cellulose, cellulose is that cell wall of a plant, it happens to be the most abundant natural polymer on the planet. Um, there's more cellulose than there is any other polymer. And cellulose is right around 50% carbon, maybe 60% carbon. Um, and what, yeah, I want to say it's actually pretty pretty close to 50% carbon. So again, here's a structure that produ is produced by a plant that is, you know, mostly carbon or predominantly carbon. It's very heavy in carbon overall. And in addition to that, we've got these proteins whose job it is just to suck carbon out of the air or to get uh, electrical energy from the sun so that they can suck carbon out of the air. So this is why I think it's important to, when you're talking about increasing yield and improving your quality as a grower, really the thing you should be obsessed with is carbon. And how do I get more carbon inside of my uh, grow? How do I get the carbon inside of my plants? The easiest way is to just put up some walls, seal a flowering room, dump a bunch of CO2 gas in, and let the plants deal with it. But that's not the most effective way of doing it at all. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we we were we were chatting about earlier today was, um, uh, you know, CalMag, for instance. You know, the functions of CalMag is about half a dozen different things that CalMag is good for. Um, and, and the different processes and things that it helps and sulfur is another one. And, and, you know, all of these nutrients have, you know, a, a half a dozen or so items that they're really important for in the overall production of plants. But carbon is, uh, like a skeleton's key. It's, uh, like Pandora's box, uh, compared to those is in all of the different functions and things that it can do. Yeah, definitely. Um, like you said, you know, pick any element like nitrogen, for example, most growers know, hey, nitrogen is, you know, gives uh, my my leaves their green color. And mo most people may know phosphorus is like the energy reserve of the plant. And so there's about, let's say, a half dozen to a dozen total kind of features and benefits of each macronutrient. But it's all kind of disjointed. You know, it, it all doesn't really make sense until you start to include carbon in the mix. Um, and in carbon, like you said, it, it really is Pandora's box because there's just no simple way of talking about carbon. That's why it has its own entire branch of chemistry. You know, organic chemistry deals with carbon and inorganic chemistry, just roughly speaking, deals with all of the rest of the stuff, which is <laughs> you know, the, the nitrogen, the way that nitrogen moves around and, and the bonds that it makes and the kind of reactions that it can have. This stuff is a little bit more simple. It's a little bit more predictable. It's a little bit more straightforward. When you add carbon into the mix, it just completely loses all sense of meaning and it kind of follows its own rules that are very dependent on, you know, what it is you're talking about. Like, for instance, we were just talking about this process by which plants take CO2 out of the air and they convert it into monoterpenes, which are fully reduced and they have multiple atoms of carbon. So it represents a lot of work for the plant. But that's not the only thing that the plants are doing with it. You know, they're combining uh, let's say there's organic acid residues that make amino acids. Well, there's also organic acid residues that combine with calcium to make cell wall constituents like calcium pectate. And pectin uh, is, as many of you know, if you've had jam that's really jammy and it's got that gelatinous kind of look and feel to it, it's got some pectin in there. And pectin is this uh, naturally occurring substance. It's like a bunch of cross-linked sugar polymers on a microscopic level that are sort of 
uh, complex with calcium and that calcium provides some rigidity and some actual physical structure just like the calcium in your teeth provides some rigidity and physical structures this is exactly the same with plants and so here's a flavor of carbon let's call it this pectic acid residue or some of these other um, sugar derivatives um, that plants are capable of complexing with calcium to achieve a very distinct and particular function you know the cell wall and the integrity of the cell wall is a pinnacle for a plant if it doesn't have a good strong cell wall it's not going to do a very good job of even its basic primary metabolism you're going to get you know all kinds of leakage you're going to get distortions in the vacuole you're going to get all kinds of crazy stuff happening with the plants but with a good thick strong cell wall the plants regulate their own internal versus external pressures very well and they're also capable of warding off disease pressures and things that uh, want to kind of attack this of a plant. so the carbon comes in on the back end as being very critical for how macronutrients are ultimately metabolized and what their sort of um, end end result is and it's kind of an easy you know cheap answer to say well how does nitrogen work in the plant and you say well that's easy it's has to do with carbon well what about phosphorus oh that's easy it has to do with carbon so all of these elements they become relevant for plants when we're talking about carbon but unlike the nitrogen and the magnesium and the phosphorus those are really straightforward and carbon chemistry is um, a lot more complex than just that it's funny when you when you made when you when you said that earlier where you're like uh where you mentioned that you know organic chemistry is really just for carbon right and then <laughs> the rest of the chemistry is kind of like everything else it reminds me of this uh anecdote my wife used to work at uh, barnes and noble and there was this uh somebody came in to the store and asked where the non-fiction section was and so the person working was like okay well so right over here is the fiction section everywhere else in the store is the non-fiction section <laughs> and i think it's the same thing with uh you know kind of the same thing where it's you know there's uh, the the carbon is the non is the nonfiction section in, the, in that kind of anecdote where there's only uh, there's most of the stuff that's going on has to do with carbon and there's kind of just this little fiction section that's going on that really isn't carbon related. Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, you know, along lines, it's interesting. If you know, going back to our hypothetical sealed flowering room, if we were here instead of cranking up the CO two, well, let's just say you crank up the CO two, you can expect an increase in yield and quality. That's they have sealed firing rooms because the point is to a add co2 and b control the environment but let's just say hypothetically we have our sealed flowering room and rather than increasing the co2 what if we decreased it what if we went down to like two ppms of co2 what we would find very quickly is that the plants do not grow at all you can throw as much nitrogen tim and magnesium is deficient something else and correct the thing which the plants need this is called the law of the minimum. It kind of defines growth in a biological system is, you know, it's the element that's least available rather than the element that's most abundant. That's always your limiting factor for continued growth. And for carbon in the form of, and you don't have any coming in uh, through the roots, then the plants will very quickly die. I think if you drop below 100 ppms or even 150 ppms of CO2 in the atmosphere, the plants cannot grow. And like I said, you can add all of the bottled salt-based fertilizer you want. It's not going to help the plants grow. Now, on the flip side, carbon chemistry coming in here and saying, well, I'm a lot more complex. On the flip side, 
you can add certain flavors of carbon that help plants deal with deficiencies in macronutrients like nitrogen, for example, or phosphorus. You know, I think everyone is familiar with this vague idea, this concept that when the plants are deficient in phosphorus, you may experience some purpling or some pigmentation occurring. And there is, you know, there is some evidence to, to specify exactly why species of plants, um, certain species of plants do that. But the uh, uh, plants will utilize carbon to help them deal with other macronutrient deficiencies. The reverse of that is not as true. You know, nitrogen will never replace uh, carbon in terms of its ability to function. Nitrogen will never make a monoterpene. It's that's the thing. That's a function of carbon. That's why they're called hydrocarbons. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, so you said something and I love the term and, and I, I mentioned I love this earlier, but I do love this. It's the flavors of carbon, right? Uh, different pathways based on different flavors of carbon. Um, so I know you mentioned pectic acid, uh, you know, which is a plant based um, from oranges, you get pectic acid and other citruses, you have calcium pectate uh, for strong cellular walls. Um, but the carbon in many ways is, is um, modifying the way that these naturally occurring acids uh, uh, actually behave. Um, and, uh, you know, it's these different flavors of carbon produce different types of effects yeah yeah like um you know there are certain types of acids that the plants uh produce that are like dedicated to a particular pathway if that makes sense so there's this one called cinnamic acid um and it does it is reminiscent of cinnamon i think it was named after cinnamon if i recall correctly same thing with jasminates by the way and jasmonic acid which is a hormone and a quote-unquote pgr that a lot of you may be familiar with um that too was derived from the jasmine plant because that's where that compound was initially discovered. It's that magnificent floral fragrance that jasmine produces. That's methyl jasminate. So you do have these groups of, uh, or these flavors of carbon that are produced by plants that help the plants get guided down a particular pathway, a biochemical pathway. So if we're looking at the pathways that give rise to those pigments, you know, that I was just talking about the pigmentation, that purple pigment that comes out, well, that pathway is uh, the phenylpropanoid pathway. And so cinnamic acid, which is a flavor of carbon, happens to be a particular building block in that pathway. And it's sort of like the, the basic Lego block, let's just call it. It's the starting point or it's that basic substrate for a lot of these more complex anthocyanins, for example, flavonoids. There's coumarins, still beans, catechins. For those of you who like drinking tea, catechins are really... Uh, one of my favorite flavors of carbon. Um, but I yeah, knew you'd get back to tea eventually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very interesting for me because they're also tea plants are also just like cannabis plants. They're masters of carbon chemistry. I think I think you know cannabis plants are masters of obviously cannabinoid and, and terpene chemistry, and I think tea plants are masters of flavonoid chemistry, which is very very similar to cannabinoid uh, and terpene chemistry in, in a kind of unique way, but. You know, these are all groups of compounds called secondary metabolites, and so they all have like some similarities with them. And the further back you go, 
in that sort of molecular evolution, the more likely you are to hit, you know, one or two, maybe even half a dozen or so sort of basic building blocks. Um, you know, just to put it into context, there's over 70,000 known terpenes. It's a very, very large number of uh, compounds that have been discovered and characterized. However, all of those 70,000 start off uh, and they originate as just a single molecule of isoprene. It's a five carbon building block. Every single terpene, all of that 70,000 comes from one. They have a common molecular ancestor. And so um, when we're looking at things like, let's say, potassium, for example, we were talking about calcium and pectic acid. Well, let's talk about potassium as a signaling compound and some of these organic acids that plants produce. It just so happens that potassium is an element taken up um, in greater quantities than uh, pretty much any other element in cannabis, even greater than um, nitrogen, but still not greater than carbon, I should say, too. And it does not become a constituent of the dry mass. And so if you dehydrate the plants properly and you cure your buds, you're not going to have a lot of potassium left overall because it's it's always remaining soluble. It's never a constituent of a cell wall or you know, a piece of chlorophyll or something like that. It's never going to be found inside of that. So that's that's also why a lot of finishing formulas have potassium. You know, sometimes it's potassium sulfate, sometimes it's an organic acid fraction of potassium, but you know, the potassium is safe for, for flushing with plants. Um, it's like an electrolyte that the plants have to have in high quantities that acts like an internal spark to allow them to keep processing carbon. Because we were talking earlier about this process of taking CO2, which is oxidized, and then making monoterpenes, which are reduced. Well, this process of reduction and oxidation requires uh, a spark, chemical energy, that gives the plants the ability to actually hold a charge. And that's where electrolytes come in. You know, and you can think if you're a marathon runner and you're 24 miles into your marathon, the last thing you want to do is just for the last two miles, cut everything out. You know, it'd be a lot better if you kept your electrolyte levels up, if you kind of finished strong with a couple of things that allowed your body to take in water and to metabolize properly. When you start becoming deficient in electrolytes and minerals, if you're a marathon runner, you're very quickly going to get dehydrated, even though you're drinking water, your body's not going to be able to absorb the water because there's not enough of that electrolyte charge present. So exact same thing is true for plants with some of these flavors of carbon, they bind with electrolytes like potassium and they help the plants sort of, let's say, finish strong or stay hydrated when the environment is otherwise very intense and would sort of downregulate their growth or present some kind of stress to them. Um, one of the ones that you met, yeah, actually there were two of them that you mentioned that you're doing some work with a lot, uh, artichoke sugar and stevia leaves. You want to talk about those a little bit and their effects on the biology? Yeah. Yeah. The, again, with the flavors of carbon, um, it's very complex. It's not linear. So the artichoke produces a type of sugar. Um, it's also prebiotic fiber. Um, inulin, I think is what it's what it's commonly prescribed as, or maybe that's derived from chicory root. But at any rate, there's a class of sugars called fructooligosaccharides. And there's just like a complex sugar source. But what we're finding is that this complex sugar source behaves much differently than something like a simple sugar source that you might get from like sucrose or molasses or cane sugar or something like that. Those are very simple uh, monomers of sugar. They're not very complex. They're uh, monosaccharides and in some cases disaccharides so you have two sugar units polysaccharides like what we're working with those are multiple sugar units kind of all 
linked and stitched together. So we've got this big, big, big sugar versus the refined sugars that are very small molecular weight. And what's kind of interesting about this flavor of carbon is that at a certain point, it's not just a food source for microbes. It's also functioning like a biostimulant for microbes. So there's this kind of X factor and it has to do with, you know, the fact that carbon chemistry is very complex. Um, it is possible for us to say, well, yeah, we're just, you know, working with artichoke and we're pulling this uh, fructooligosaccharide out of the flowering heads. But there's something about that that's beyond just a carbon source for the for the plants and for the microbes. It's stimulating um, certain types of things that we want to see, like phosphorylation activity in the plants. It's stimulating water uptake, transpiration efficiency. It's got all this like host of secondary benefits. And I think what it comes down to is that when you're working with certain types or flavors of carbon that plants produce, really what they're function is, is, is not one dimensional. It's very complex, very multidimensional. You know, what a flavonoid is to a microbe or a fungi in the soil is totally different than what is to the worms crawling around. And even that is totally different than what it is to the humans that want to consume that flavonoid. The flavonoids have functions and benefits for all orders and kingdoms of life, but it's all different. That's the most you know, mind blowing part about it is, you know, these compounds that are secondary metabolites, they're produced and uh, they arguably drive and they're responsible for driving entire uh, interactions across kingdoms of species. You know, we're, we're talking about a plant producing something to attract a bird. You know, this is a, this is a very, very complex thing that we're dealing with here. The plant has this uh, ability to produce a molecule having none of the sensitive organs that the bee does or the, the bird does. Um, and they've been on separate evolutionary histories for so long that it almost makes you, you know, think about how sensitive plants are to sort of their signals and what's coming in and how they use carbon, the carbon stores that they've built. What are some of the flavors of flavors of carbon that they can use to sort of modulate their experience? Obviously pollination and attraction is one of the best examples because plants don't have feet. They don't have a way to move around but they've done a really good job of populating themselves around the entire planet. How is that? Well, they produce these flavors of carbon that happen to attract things that do move around quite a bit. You know, it's things like that where we have to, you know, look a little bit more at the subtle nuanced details and say, well, what's really happening here? You know, is it a mechanical thing? Is it, is it just the fact that there's carbon present or is there something else like with the, the artichoke sugars, you know, is there some deeper level of something happening with the carbon? that connected that connected tissue right that that connectivity between things that we talk about in the system you know um again i uh I, we always um make a mistake when we try to isolate any one of these individual components and try to uh, make them uh to elevate them above uh or to just focus on them in isolation without the larger picture. Um, you have to have that connective tissue between uh, these different uh, functions and elements and nutrients uh, to make the system function. And uh, just the presence of them alone, again, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be successful if you don't have the capability to have the interactions occur. 
Yeah, and, and carbon is the glue that ties all this stuff together. You know, let's just say hypothetically you're growing a plant and you harvest that plant. What you've done when you, when, the moment that you make that cut and harvest the flowering branch, what you've done is take a snapshot or a picture of that current enzymatic state. So if you could analyze everything that was happening in that plant, what you would see is the plant was in some portions of its tissue in the process of capturing CO2 out of the air. In other portions of its tissue was in the process of moving that carbon as a carbohydrate around. In other parts, let's say in the trichomes and in the actual trichome heads, you would find a lot of these enzymes, just like workers, they're acting on a substrate. They've got simple sugars, they've got organic acids, and they're actively working. They're actively building these chemical scaffolds, these compounds like terpenes and cannabinoids. And really what we're interested in as humans is that fraction of terpenes and cannabinoids. But what we're not seeing on the back end is what else is happening inside of the plant, how many hundreds, if not thousands, or even tens of thousands of different steps are being taken to actually make that one terpene and that one cannabinoid. So really the name of the game is to try to find a way to increase the efficiency of carbon metabolism in plants. One of the ways that we, you know, that you guys had talked about in this previous episode was enzymes. Well, enzymes do work for the plants. You know, in a lot of ways, you can look at macronutrients like nitrogen kind of in a, in a similar type of role. I mean, they're tools just like enzymes are tools, but instead of doing work, the work is more specific. The nitrogen helps the plants capture more carbon. The magnesium grabs the energy from the sun. The phosphorus accepts the carbon from the air. You know, these are all tools that the plants ultimately use to capture that carbon. And like yep. I mentioned earlier, when these compounds that we're talking about are 80 to 90% carbon by weight, you know, make no mistake, that's not exclusive to cannabis. We could talk about taxol produced by Pacific yew trees. We could talk about digitalis produced by foxglove. We could talk about jasminates produced by jasmine. I mean, all kinds of different compounds produced by all kinds of different plants. You know, rosmarinic acid produced by rosemary. All of these compounds are going to be predominantly flavors of carbon. That's kind of like their, their function or their role. And even at large, these flavors of carbon that we're talking about, they're not like fixed things that just stay in a constant state. They're always being converted by the plants. And again, with the snapshot thing, really what we're doing is we're watching a movie that is the plant's life. And then we've decided to harvest it, snip it and cut it. And we capture a snapshot. And that's all that we get this like frozen moment in time of what the plant's enzymatic natural state was. So if we can cultivate these plants so that when we do take that snapshot, when we do harvest, what we're getting is a reflection of the plant and at, at its peak productivity, at its best possible function. Very low stress, very high throughput, a lot of terpenes, a lot of cannabinoids, very low on the residual uh, compounds that may be considered, let's say, contaminants or undesirable or things that don't contribute to the flavor of the quality of the, uh, the flower. Awesome. Um, so we are, uh, we're at the hour mark. So I want to go ahead and, uh, relight the room before we get into, uh, a couple of the final topics and, uh, you know, a couple final points and then, uh, do a wrap up and then invite some folks up to, uh, open up the conversation, answer some of the questions on YouTube. 
Uh, we've had a couple comments uh, that I want to dig into around biochar and uh, diving in a little bit more into the functions of sulfur. Uh, are a couple of the items that have come up on YouTube, so I want to get into those. But let's go ahead and relight the room. So welcome to Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. Uh, we're here every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, we are uh, hosting this room live on Clubhouse so that we can get this fantastic interactive chat going. Um, it's a wonderful platform to have these types of conversations and, and to be able to dig in deeper um, and then to provide a space for folks to come up and, and, and to add to that conversation and to ask questions and contribute. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I love Clubhouse and having that conversation on here. And our uh, friends at the Future Cannabis Project are, of course, simultaneously simulcasting uh, this clubhouse room on YouTube uh, right now on the uh, FCPO2 channel. Uh, so the Future Cannabis uh, Project O2 channel. So if you pop over to the YouTube channel, you can always uh, check out a replay if you missed any of the conversation tonight, or if you want to replay any of the fat stack of knowledge that uh, Nick's been dropping on us tonight. Uh, you can jump into that uh, YouTube video and, and get caught up on anything you might have missed. I want to thank Peter. And of course, I want to thank my friend Nick uh, from The Rooted Leaf uh, for, for joining uh, me today at, uh, for the Grow and Tell and uh, providing, again, another fantastic conversation and topic for us to dive deep into. Um, I always enjoy being forced down the rabbit hole uh, when you when you come uh, when you come by to visit. So I appreciate you, Nick, and uh, thank you again for uh, coming up with this topic tonight. Uh, so um, I know that um, one of the things you definitely want to dip into, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit with you know ninety percent of the carbon uh, terpenes are actually made up of carbon. Let's dig a little bit into kind of some of the math and metrics and some of the test results, uh, some of the things that you've been digging into and finding as far as carbon. Yeah, so you know the carbon thing is interesting because as I mentioned earlier for cannabis producers it's just like all of these uh, variables have kind of lined up and it makes discussing what is otherwise a very complex topic discussing that very easy because all cannabis growers whether they know it or not ultimately they're carbon farmers they grow the cannabis well why for it produces terpenes and cannabinoids okay so they're farming terpenes and cannabinoids but those terpenes and cannabinoids are 80 to 90 percent carbon so in reality at the end of the day they're just farming carbon and the quality and therefore the price point of cannabis flowers can be defined by the concentration of some of these substances. You know, in, in certain cases, they are very highly uh, biologically active. They are therapeutic. Um, put it this way, if, if you took your body weight in pounds or kilograms, depending on who we have listening here, and you converted that into milligrams, you can go on Google and type in milligrams to pounds converter, just try to figure out how much your body weighs in milligrams and then ask yourself how many milligrams of cannabinoids would get you to whatever you want to achieve. You know, if you want to get sky high and just blast off, you take a giant dab. Is that a hundred milligrams of cannabinoids or are you doing a thousand milligrams of cannabinoids? Um, there's probably very few people that are taking, you know, full dab, uh, full gram dabs, but, um, 
you know, especially to achieve an active therapeutic dose. I, I feel like for most people, it's going to be 50 to 100 milligrams is going to do the trick. So that being said, if you weigh like 200 pounds, um, you know, that's somewhere around 100 billion milligrams. So here's a substance that when you take 50 and you divide it into 100 billion, it has the ability to move that 100 billion in a completely bizarre way. You know, your your eyes may change color, your breath may, you know, change, your salivation level may change, you may get really hungry, your memory may change. There's all of these profound impacts that a very, very small 50 milligrams has on the very much larger 100, bill 100 billion milligram individual experiencing it. So, you know, these, these uh, compounds, they're active at very, very low doses in some cases. And so, you know, with uh, the carbon as the macronutrient being the sort of the guiding principle is when plants are taking in that carbon in the form of CO2, really what they're trying to do is find ways to convert that into therapeutically active substances or compounds that can be useful to deter pests or pathogens or disease pressures and kind of, you know, things like that. I hope that answered the question. I wasn't, uh, didn't get too far off topic there. Yeah, no, 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 that's great. Um, I did also want to mention that uh, if you are enjoying the conversation today, please make sure that you click on that little greenhouse at the top and join the Future Cannabis Project so you can get alerted of any upcoming conversations and make sure you follow myself and Nick, uh, as well as Peter and the Future Cannabis Project that you have down below. Um, it's uh, always good to uh, make sure that you join the club so that you uh, don't miss out on any more of these future conversations. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, math and metrics and, and some of the, the calculation we, we often talk about. Uh, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about uh, flavonoids, right? Uh, flavonoids being that, uh, you know, the trinity, the, the, the whole, the third leg of the stool, so to speak, of the tripod. Uh, when you talk about cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids um, and you know we talked a little bit about math and metrics around um, you know starting to see maybe not necessarily just terpenes on there and just cannabinoids on there but doing some other type of a test that had to do with flavonoids um, and understanding the flavonoid components. Um, so that was one of the conversations and I think taking again another kind of uh, another look at carbon and the percentages and numbers that are involved with carbon, you know, mentioning that, you know, at the very beginning, the NPK and all the rest of the other micro macronutrients, if you multiply that by five, it still doesn't even equal the amount of carbon that's there. And carbon is such a big part of the equation. Um, and, and, you know, when you are looking at a report that's talking about terpenes and cannabinoids, you are actually looking at a carbon report. Yeah, yeah, and really it's it's kind of hard, but if you've got flour that, let's just say it tested above 30% cannabinoids, maybe closer to 35, and the terpenes on it are somewhere between 5 and 7%, um, that's pretty good flour, you know, that would sell for top dollar anywhere in the U.S., but if you had one of these, uh, like if you had a pound of this stuff, you were looking at it, it'd be really hard and re be really deceiving to try to understand how much carbon is in there. I mean, you're looking at about a third to half of the overall biomass is a single element and it's hard to look at that and say well how is this green pigment the same thing as this beautiful aroma that i'm getting and the subtle trick on the back end is those are all flavors of carbon that the plant is producing the terpenes which have some aroma and some fragrance the, eth the uh, esters um, there's flavonoids like you mentioned 
pigments like anthocyanins, even chlorophyll, whatever you're looking at is a type of carbon that is produced by the plant. Whatever you're handling, if it has some physical texture to it, if it's got some rigidity like a stem, you know, that's cellulose that's pretty much, you know, mostly carbon by weight. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's hard because carbon, you can't really look at it and, and think like, oh, my plants are deficient in carbon. You know, if your plants were deficient in nitrogen, you'd be very easy to tell, right? The leaves are yellow, you put more nitrogen on and the deficiency kind of corrects itself. Um, plants are always limited in their growth by what element is least available, not that which is most abundant. And it's really, really difficult, even for very experienced growers and cultivators to try to understand how a plant can be deficient in carbon. I would say if you get test results back and that flower is 3% terpenes or 2% terpenes, I would say that plant is deficient in carbon because if you gave it more carbon and access to more carbon that was balanced with everything else, it would absolutely give back more terpenes and more cannabinoids. I mean, again, these things are mostly, they're 80 to 90% carbon by weight anyways. So it's very mechanical to assume, well, if I put more carbon, the plants will give me back more stuff that's mostly carbon by weight. It's just a function of their metabolism, and it's what they strive to achieve. <laughs> That's an awesome comment by uh, Chris Carrero on uh, on the chat. When I'm deficient in carbon, I smoke cannabis to refill. <laughs> <laughs> <I like that. laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not smoking cannabis to high. I'm uh, to get high. I'm smoking cannabis to resolve a uh, carbon deficiency. <laughs> 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 awesome thank you so much chris for that that's uh that's fantastic um and um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's funny because I actually have carbon deficiency written down in my, uh, in my notes from our conversation earlier. Um, I, you know, the only other thing that I have written down that we really didn't get into, um, we mentioned, um, a little bit about, uh, mushrooms because, uh, since mushrooms were a big part of the conversation last week as well, um, what, what's the, what's, what's up with mushrooms and carbon? Because mushrooms aren't plants. Mushrooms are fungi. They're their own species. Yeah. So mushrooms are, are interesting. You know, typically the, the network that grows underground, that mycelial network, um, is pretty thin overall. In some cases, it's just a single cell wide and it's like this network, just one cell wide that kind of goes through the soil. Um, and there's some crazy, you know, math that people have done. They've worked out like in a single square inch of soil, you may have like several miles of actual mycorrhizal fungi that are there. So it's like this very intricate, very complex microscopic structure. Um, but because of this particular shape that it has, you know, again, it's very small, sometimes just one cell wide. It doesn't require a lot of macronutrients, right? With the cannabis plants, we see them grow. We want the leaves to be big. We want the stems to be nice and thick. We want there to be a a lot of biomass for the vegetative side of things. The, the fungi, they're a little different. They intake a lot of um, carbon and they intake a lot of calcium. And the calcium is used to build that cell wall and to help provide some structure, just like for humans. And really beyond that, you know, there's not a whole lot that the, that the fungi need because they secrete enzymes into their surrounding environment. Think about it this way. We've got stomachs on the inside of our bodies. So we eat something, it goes into our stomach and it digests. Well, the stomach of a fungi is everything outside of it. 
it doesn't have an internal cavity. It has an external cavity that's literally the entire planet. And so it pushes out digestive enzymes um, and, and, you know, sort of tools that will help break down some of the organic mass that's left in the soil and convert that and resolubilize it and pull it back in and use that to expand and to keep growing. So there is this uh, huge boost that fungi get when exposed to carbon. And the most natural and obvious um, example is, you know, during the fall time when the leaves senesce and the foliage starts to hit the ground, what happens directly after that? It's mushroom hunting season because the mushrooms, the fungi, they're aware that the leaf litter has hit the ground and that leaf litter, that decaying leaf litter, that's a fantastic source of carbon. It's mostly carbon by weight. Again, going back to it, there's a lot of cellulose that gets decomposed. It gets composted through the process, you know, this decomposition. But again, these these fungi, they're secreting enzymes that start to break down the external world around it and then pull it back in and keep the carbon. And the other macronutrients, the other minerals, those are required in relatively small quantities. Um, I would say calcium is, you know, probably the most abundant. I'm not an expert in mycology, but we have done a little bit of work and the results seem to suggest that calcium and carbon are the two sort of best friends of a, of a, of a mushroom farmer. That's awesome. That actually answered one of the questions that came through in the chat earlier, which was, is, uh, you know, leaf mold, um, good source of carbon, which, uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it is just the process of converting insoluble flavors of carbon, like cellulose, you know, you can water your plants all day long, but that cellulose is not soluble. And so you're not going to, you know, literally wash your plants away. Whereas, you know, the types of sugars they produce, if you chop off a leaf and then you squeeze that leaf and get the resultant liquid out of it, that liquid is soluble in water. And it has flavors of carbon that are soluble in water as well. You know, think about how you would juice the cannabis leaf and then drink the subsequent juice. There's active compounds in that juice that are healthy and they're beneficial. And these are the sort of flavors of carbon. Um, and you can increase the ability of a plant's, you know, natural tendency to make certain flavors of carbon. I think biochar, um, which, which was one of the questions, I think biochar is a good way of doing that, you know, the problem with carbon, again, is plants struggle to keep carbon reduced because they want it reduced. They don't want it fully oxidized. Otherwise, it's just CO2 in the air. And that represents the greatest amount of energy that the plant has to spend in order to actually access that carbon. So where possible, they would prefer some already hydrated carbon, like a carbohydrate sugar source or something like that. So biochar is unique because in order to produce it, it... Uh, is burned. It's like wood, you know, uh, litter and debris um, that has been burned inside of a chamber that has no oxygen. And this is very important because no oxygen equals no oxidation. So you don't have oxidized carbon. What ends up happening is that you end up with uh, reduced carbon. It looks like ash almost. It's very dark, very charcoal-like. But the molecular properties are interesting because Again, that, that lack of oxygen in the atmosphere allowed that carbon to remain in a more or less reduced form. Now, you know, it's not because it's been burned, it doesn't automatically make it soluble. You know, just like a piece of charcoal, you can water a piece of charcoal, you're going to get some, uh, you know, like jet black effluent stream coming off of it because part of that carbon gets pulled and it gets suspended and then it gets solubilized. 
but in reality the whole brick itself is not soluble and so biochar think about it like a slow release form of carbon something that takes a little bit of time to break down as it breaks down it affords certain uh, structural qualities to the soil there's also some mechanical properties um, that it helps assist with like the porosity of the soil or the overall density of the soil the ability of the soil to hold moisture the water retention capacity the cation exchange capacity or CEC provides a little environments for microbes and biology to live and, and conduct their business as well. Yeah. Biochar is really great stuff. Um, yeah. So I hope I answered that question about biochar too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I think that's, that's, that's good stuff. Um, any, any uh, further comments about um, sulfur in carbon or sulfur in uh, plants? Sure. Yeah. Sulfur is also one of those interesting ones because um, a lot of growers, you know, add some sulfur at the end of the uh, flowering cycle, thinking that it's going to contribute to the formation of smells and things like that. And it's not it's not 100 percent true like that. I mean, so put it this way, if you're inside of a trichome head, let's just say you're small enough, your actual physical body fits inside of a trichome head and you're inside of this trichome head, you're kind of looking around, you're looking at all these enzymes doing work. Some of these enzymes, the work that they're doing is, hey, I'm the enzyme that makes, you know, monoterpenes. I'm the enzyme that makes, you know, cannabinoids and THC. And, you know, you've got hundreds potentially of these different enzymes that are all working using substrates. And as this is happening, it becomes sort of a, a high intensity work environment. Now, in the trichome head, it's right by the outermost layer. It is the outermost layer technically of the plant. And so just on the opposite side of this um, trichome head, is an environment that's full of oxygen. That oxygen wants to get in, it wants to oxidize all of that fully reduced carbon. So what do the plants do? Well, they say, God, I need some kind of antioxidants, you know, some kind of thing that will prevent this oxidation, oxidative degradation from occurring. And so in the actual trichome heads, in addition to all the workers that are producing terpenes and cannabinoids, there are powerful antioxidant enzymes. And this is where sulfur fits into the equation. Sulfur itself is not a constituent of any kind of aroma that cannabis plants produce. I think if we were talking about brassicas and we wanted like, you know, glucoraphanin, sulforaphane, uh, glucosinolates, um, you know, those types of compounds, those are the ones that contain sulfur that have a smell like onions, for example, and garlic, you know, things like that. Those, those do, but cannabis uh, does not. What what happens is that sulfur typically gets put on in the form of sulfate, as we talked about earlier, Epsom salt, magnesium sulfate. That sulfate has to go through a process of reduction, and that process of reduction requires chemical energy. Upon that chemical energy being exerted and the sulfur being fully reduced, it becomes integrated into a single amino acid, and this is kind of the this is the easy part to remember with sulfate is that all sulfate reduction in plants terminates with the biosynthesis of one amino acid, cysteine. And cysteine is the one that from cysteine, plants will use that cysteine to make pretty much everything else, including glutathione. And glutathione is that antioxidant that I was talking about, that compound that acts like a sponge and it soaks up all of this oxidative stress that's otherwise present in the atmosphere of the plant as it's, you know, doing some hard work and and converting, you know, organic acids into isoprene and then stacking that isoprene, making, you know, monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes, diterpenes, cannabinoids, things like that. All this complex stuff is happening at the same time that there's antioxidant enzymes kind of patrolling and cruising around 
and they are just like sponges. They soak up all of this oxidative stress. And the mechanics behind that specifically is that the sulfate, that thiol group that's created within uh, cysteine and transferred into meth uh, into methionine and uh, uh, glutathione, um, it's that sulfur-containing uh, portion of it that soaks up all of that oxidative stress. And there's this redox thing that happens as a conversion between thiol groups and disulfide uh, groups as well. So uh, it, it happens to be the way that, you know, it's, it's a pretty powerful um, redox mechanism and a tool that allows the plants to really just control and mitigate the oxidative stress that uh, arises from producing, you know, just naturally as, as a result of producing these terpenes and cannabinoids, there's going to be some type of stress that's placed on the plant. So again, with the sulfur, it's the antioxidant defense enzymes, particularly like glutathione and superoxide dismutase, which rely on sulfur for their actual functionality. I hope that uh, answered the question. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, hopefully Smiley uh, Garden uh, got what he was looking for uh, in his answer. He definitely asked us to dig a little more into sulfur, so I hope that was uh, kind of the direction that we was hoping to go. Um, so let's go ahead. We're uh, close to uh, an hour and 20 minutes. We're coming to the hour and a half mark. Uh, let's go ahead. Uh, you know, it might be a good idea to do a little wrap up and then start inviting some folks up to ask some questions and comment on the conversation tonight. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and, uh, give us a good summary or wrap up on, uh, what you want us to take away from this all today, Nick. Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, if there's one thing to remember, it's that carbon is the most important macronutrient by far. You know, if, if you as a grower, are obsessed with finding ways to sink more carbon into your plants, everything else will fall into place after that. I mean, plants even take up water with the purpose of carbon metabolism sort of in heart and mind. It's sort of one of the beautiful aspects of what plants do. So um, it's very easy, I think, to get lost and to try to figure out like, what's the thing that's going on? You know, like what is the individual element that my plants are deficient in? And it's gotta be something that's different than the other thing. It's very easy to get fragmented and become lost in that kind of state of not being sure. It's very difficult to understand that there's connective tissue that holds all this stuff together. And that's what carbon is. It's that thing that you can always kind of lean on and it's going to help you. Even if you didn't think that the thing that you thought was wrong was really the thing that was wrong, it doesn't matter because the moment the plants get access to carbon, they have this opportunity and ability to open up an entire Pandora's box of possible solutions, all of which are creative. You know, if the plants are struggling with a phosphorus deficiency, and add the phosphorus and they'll correct it. You cannot add nitrogen to correct the phosphorus deficiency. You cannot add potassium. You can do something with carbon. The plants do find ways to use carbon as tools to mitigate against all possible stressors. So if ever you're in doubt, add more carbon. That's what uh, I think is the, yeah. the meat and potatoes of it all. Find the flavor of carbon to help you solve the, the problem that you're having. Um, I think that's uh, absolutely something that I, I definitely took took away. I love that flavor of carbon. Um, I love that continued discussion of the, the continuity and the connectivity of all of these uh, great aspects. Um, I did want to mention it is uh, we just passed 420 in Hawaii, the last 420 for the U.S. Thank you, uh, 
Ali Muffins for uh, making sure I was, uh, I mentioned that it is 420 in Hawaii right now. So hopefully folks in Hawaii and anybody who wants to join in and celebrate 420 in Hawaii, the last 420 for the day uh, in the North American time zone. So um, yeah, so let me go ahead and um, open up the room for uh, people to join um and come on up to the stage and ask some questions i want to uh again thank uh peter with future cannabis project uh for simulcasting us onto uh youtube uh so that this can be recorded and saved and uh checked out by more people who aren't necessarily on clubhouse yet uh, but hopefully will join us soon so they can come and join in on the conversation um, and, uh, you know, Nick, thank you so much for this extremely dense conversation as always for uh, taking us down a rabbit hole on carbon tonight, uh, for the third episode of, uh, of Hota herbs grow and tell. And, uh, again, please, if you enjoyed the conversation tonight, uh, click on the green little green house and, uh, join the future cannabis project here. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the Future Cannabis Project and Future Cannabis Project O2 channel on YouTube, and uh, give all of us a follower, a follow, uh, Nick, uh, and uh, as the Rooted Leaf on Instagram, or myself as Hota Herb on Instagram, and Peter is also uh, Future Cannabis Project is Budgasm, B-U-D-J-A-S-M, or look up Future Cannabis Project, and you will find it on YouTube. All right, so we got Ali Muffin up here, and I'm going to get infused for sure up here. Uh, heard her speaking earlier, so great. I'm glad to have you join us, infused. Ali, what's going on tonight? Happy Thursday. Happy Grow and Tell Thursday. Happy Grow and Tell, guys. Um, a, it's the National Day of Truth and Remembrance in, and Reconciliation in Canada. So I just want to start by recognizing that. Uh, day for us but um what a great talk you guys have had and i had a couple of questions i have a 80 actually but um i wanted to ask you and nick and nick welcome back bro great to see you on on the platform i wanted to ask you guys what role does the uh, and i don't know if you may have addressed it at some point but what role does the growing medium play in the plant's ability to absorb carbon. And what do we learn from that exchange? And my second kind of question for that is, is there any transfer of carbon like fungi do to the ground or is all of the carbon stored in the plant? It's fascinating for me from the environmental perspective when we look at how plants can help us with carbon sequestration. So I don't know if it was too complicated, but my question is, how does the medium affect carbon and where is it stored? Yeah, yeah that, that's great stuff. I think, um, you know, when we talk about those mycorrhizal fungi, like uh, Nick was mentioning earlier, and how they are a large portion of, um, they, they make up miles and miles and miles of these fungi, connected fungi, uh, and they're very much a carbon-based form. Um, they're also responsible for a large portion of the water exchange. So, um, you know, fungi, you, you don't get water exchange uh, to the plant 
um, and definitely a, a large portion of this conversation uh, from my standpoint. Yeah, and the uh, exchange of carbon. I mean, think about it this way, like the leaves of a plant are exposed to a gaseous environment. And think about that like an ocean. But instead of an ocean of liquid, we've got an ocean of gas. And that gas is really what the leaf surface is interacting with. And its job, um, the plant's job is to take that CO2 out of the air and then convert it into something where it's really soluble <clears throat> as an actual liquid. You know, again, this is the uh, the benefit of having carbohydrates. If the plant makes sucrose out of CO2, you know, uh, CO2 is not very soluble in water. And if you've ever had a can of soda on a hot summer day, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You open it up and immediately all of the CO2 says, no, let me go. I want to get out of here. So it's not that soluble in water. And certainly if you open up some soda and you let it sit at room temperature for even a couple of hours, what happens to all of the CO2 it leaves? It just fully it doesn't want to stay in the water it leaves so the plant's task is to find a way to convert that co2 into something that is soluble like sucrose and sugars that have such a high degree of solubility that they are in fact more soluble i think you can fit like two grams of sugar in one gram of water or something like that i mean it's a profound amount of sugar that can be stuffed inside of a little bit of water so this is very advantageous to the plant because now all of a sudden it has two benefits. One is it's incredibly soluble, so it's easy to move around for the plant um, using water that's passively available from the roots. Uh, and then the second thing is that it represents uh, the ability for the plant to you know, take that carbon, move it out from the aerial parts and move it into the soil where it can start to feed some microbes and can uh, contribute to carbon sequestration and sinking carbon. So the exact flavor of carbon that's produced let's say it's a flavonoid or something like that, the plant will oftentimes produce that to feed the microbes that exchange uh, minerals that are available to the plants for those food sources. So that way the microbe is feeding the plant and the plant is feeding the microbe because microbes love uh, you know, sugar sources, they love carbon sources, but they're not very good at photosynthesis. And in fact, if you leave most microbial cultures out in very intense light, they will, you know, they'll die, they'll get fried. They're sort of meant to grow a little bit more away from the light, not not necessarily indirect light. Um, but the plants on the flip side, they're really good at growing in direct light and they're really good at scrubbing CO2 out of the air. So yes, it does get sunk from the plants. I would say in some cases, 25 up to 50% of the CO2 that's fixed by the plants can actually be traced back down into the soil where some, you know, carbohydrates are produced and exchanged with fungi or with microbes. Wow. That's actually so much more than I would have expected. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, guys. I think another aspect that's important to mention as well when you talk about um, that is that, um, you know, the soil itself is a large portion carbon. Uh, so what is soil? Soil is sand, silt, and clay, humic uh, humic uh, bodies and biology. That's what makes up soil. Uh, so if you don't have the humic portions and you don't have the biology, then you don't have soil. So you can't actually have soil without carbon. <laughs> uh, a large portion of what's in carbon is those humic humates and the humates are made from plant material, uh, which is mostly carbon. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know this or maybe don't appreciate it fully, but globally across the entire planet, the number one 
cause of soil formation uh, is organic acid production by plants. In other words, they are taking CO2 out of the air and they're finding a way to deposit it inside their rhizosphere, the below ground parts. And over the course of hundreds of millions of years, the organic acids that are produced start to weather some of the silicates, start to weather some of the minerals. And when they introduce carbon into the mix, they're going to get uh, increased, like Jason mentioned, you're, you're getting humic substances, which are basically just composted compost that's been in the process of degrading for, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of years. Um, but like I said, the, the, the number one cause of soil formation globally around the planet is plants taking CO2 out of the air and finding a way to just shove it in the ground because it's a lot more useful for them, a lot more accessible, and it really does a lot more when it's fully reduced as opposed to fully oxidized. Um, the weathering phenomena is also pretty interesting too because I mean, you know, a couple hundred million years ago, there was a lot of a lot more silicates that were around, and as plants started to conquer the land, um, all of these organic acids they they produce they're they're meant to weather away and to kind of chip away and mine away at the minerals and then create soil out of it. And this is how soil fertility, you know, progressively gets built is by the introduction of carbon that's sunk by plants that grow, you know, they strip it out of the air and they sink it in the ground. And then that ground starts to progressively change over the course of a very long period of time, the chemical properties, the physical properties, the, the sponge like nature of it, holding water increases the ability of those minerals to get held. All this stuff goes up. Well, and I don't want to distract us too much, um, but on this point that you just brought up, the PPMs of our air now, in terms of carbon, if I'm not mistaken, are about 150 PPM higher than naturally would have been. I think uh, a standard recording would have been 300 to 330 PPM of carbon. We're sitting at around 440 right now. And it's fascinating to uh, we should be, I hope, measuring the size of leaves as a result because um, the temperatures on the earth affect like things that are very simple, like the size of reptiles because of the amount of sun it gets. And I could see the correlation between the, the size of plants and the PPM available on earth. It may be bad for the entire earth in terms of greenhouse effect, but it seems like particular plants would do well at this time and we should be planting more and more trees as we all know yeah yeah and, and you know it's not so much that like the high ppm of co2 in the air isn't isn't like you know without getting too far into it and too far off topic i don't want to dive into the, like politics of, of global warming and all that but carbon is not the enemy you know co2 in the air i think is a reflection of something that's happening uh, on land and i personally think that higher co2 can result in improved performance, but that's not the best flavor of carbon for the plants because it's fully oxidized. You know, if we were to look at reforestation rather than deforestation, that may be a way to help us fix and sink a lot more carbon, um, you know, than, than may be immediately perceivable for us. Um, there's actually a good story from 1995 of an orange juice producer in Costa Rica, and they had struck a deal with the government to give away, I think it was like 7.7 .7 acres of uh their land and it was just degraded cattle pasture land sitting kind of sandwiched between two plots of what was otherwise a costa rican rainforest you know, so you can think rainforest right it has a lot of biodiversity there's a lot of productivity 
except for in this one 7.7 or like seven to eight acre um, piece of land, totally degraded. So the deal that was struck basically between the orange juice producer and the government was, hey, we've got all this extra pith and orange juice or, or you know, orange peels and sort of the leftover of the juice making process. Can we throw that on the seven and a half acres and see what happens as far as reforestation goes? And so um, they ended up actually doing that. They dumped 12,000 tons of orange peel. This is a true story. You guys can look it up. There was a um, student that actually the, the pilot, the professor that started this, he was a professor at, at Princeton University. And he had a student come back to him, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years after they dumped the orange peel. And that became the topic for his thesis. But what ended up happening basically was the after the 12,000 tons of orange peels were dumped, one of the competitors found out they sued the you know, the company that dumped the orange peels, that company lost. And so the site was abandoned until the student from Princeton came back like 15 to 20 years later. Uh, the only problem was that he couldn't find this barren piece of land. Um, it took him about a week. He was hacking through a, an overgrown forest that was just full of lush foliage, green vines. Um, he had a machete and he just could not get through it. And he took him a full week. I promise you this, this is a true story. It took him about a week before he finally realized that it wasn't a barren piece of land anymore, that the orange peels had transformed into the actual rainforest that he was hacking his way through, trying to find where the barren piece of land was. And he finally, his exact words were uh, when I, you know, something to the effect of when I, when I was able to pull my jaw from off of the ground, I began to realize just how magnificent and marvelous this was. And so he spent three years researching this one piece of land that had been treated with orange peels. And he found some crazy stuff. Like there was six times greater species diversity uh, and also three times greater population density for that same sort of, you know, same square footage of, you know, plants. You've got more plant species overall. And so the diversity went up and the overall density went up quite a bit as well. It ended up being one of the most productive areas of that rainforest, um, that seven acres sank more carbon than I think uh, an old growth forest does in the course of, you know, 10 or 15 years. There was, there was some crazy metric about that, but, you know, it was, uh, it was just a really interesting example of how when you look at carbon as a macronutrient, you know, again, when we're talking about nitrogen, you put nitrogen on a plant and you can correct a deficiency. When you put carbon on the ground, you can literally grow a rainforest out of a barren piece of land. And that rainforest is gonna have dozens and dozens of species, very complex, uh, very complex and intricate sort of web of life, um, you know, things like that. So carbon is very important. Thanks for letting me go down that deep rabbit hole with you guys. Um, I yield to the ladies and uh, again, just wanna recognize the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation for Canada. Welcome. Autumn and Jenna, I yield to you guys. Thanks for having me up, guys. Thanks for joining us tonight, uh, Ali. Uh, so, uh, Infused, uh, how are you doing tonight? Thanks Hi, Jason. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're so welcome, and thank you so much for this space and sharing the knowledge that you are sharing. It's really interesting because I'm dealing with a carbon um, issue right now, and I just, oh, hi, everyone else in the room, um, and I'm happy to be here with you guys. I just had a really quick, quick question. Um, I am trying to use a 
as least chemicals as possible, um, trying to get as close to organically growing as I can. Um, and I was just wondering if you knew of any um, natural and chemical free ways to um, increase um, carbon. I was looking at a um, little machine and it's a CO2 emitting machine, but this grow that I have, it's like in my basement and I think what I read online is that it's not safe to breathe in what the machine is emitting. So I was just wondering if you know of any organic ways to increase the carbon in the air that is not um, harmful to breathe um, because it may, you know, permeate throughout the home. Thank you so much. Yeah. So um, it, it's it's interesting, right? Because um, you know, we all, as growers, everybody, we hear about CO2 as being this uh, fantastic thing that you need to add. And, um, you know, it's, uh, as, as a home grower, CO2 is a difficult thing to add unless you're dealing with a closed space. Um, so one of the problems with using CO2 in a home environment is a lot of people use grow tents and grow tents are not airtight. And so that CO2 uh, doesn't necessarily stay in the tent uh, as you want it to. So that's first. Another issue is that, um, you know, you have a very small space. And depending on how you have your exhaust and fans set up, uh, many times all of the air. So I have, for instance, a 5x5 five five tent that I grow in. All the air in that 5x5 five five tent is going to be um, sucked out and replaced in about uh, you know in about a minute and a half, on average, based on the CFM, the type of fan I'm using, and things like that. So if I pump CO2 into the tent, it's just going to get sucked right back out by that exhaust fan. So I would have to shut off my exhaust fans, run the CO2 leave that space for a little while going and then turn my fans back on. Uh, many people will do this on a timer. So you'll have to have timers that shut off your exhaust and turn on the CO2 and then shut off the CO2 and turn the fan back on. Um, so, you know, again, using CO2 in small spaces, especially in tent spaces is probably not the most efficient thing to do. You're probably not getting a ton of benefit out of that CO2 as much as you would if you have a sealed room. Um, some ways to introduce additional CO2 that aren't, you know, running a machine um, are uh, mushrooms. So uh, there are, uh, so growing fungi or other plant, uh, you know, in the room uh, or in the area near where your plants are will release more CO2 into the space uh, where, you know, fungi are, are, are definitely going to be a, a there. Um, another way to naturally make CO2 is by combining vinegar and baking soda. It releases CO2, um, although that is a quick reaction. It's a very short reaction. It's not something that's sustainable. Um, and you know, again, if you're using a CO2 tank you're, and you're not in a sealed airtight space, there's probably not a lot of concern from a health standpoint 
uh, from a, you know concern about you being able to breathe in that space. Um, if you are in a sealed controlled space and you are pumping those CO2 levels up very high, then you might need to be a little bit cautious about what those CO2 levels are versus your oxygen levels in that space. So I hope that helps. Nick, anything to add on that? Um, yeah, kind of like you were saying, you know, it's to, to a certain extent, if you're looking to find ways to put CO2 in the air, I, I, I don't know if there's any other way. Um, you know, like Jason was saying, even if you have like uh, vinegar and baking soda, what happens is the carbon in there eventually will oxidize because there's a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. You know, every breath you take has got a lot of oxygen. So it tends to oxidize the carbon into CO2. The, the way around that is if you're feeding the soil, it may be possible, for instance, to add like, let's say some um, sugars <clears throat> like molasses, for example, or a kelp type of uh, fertilizer, a kelp based product. One of my favorite flavors of carbon is the kelp extracts. Um, you'll find ways to kind of feed the soil and then the soil itself will hold all of the carbon for the plant. And then you'll see that the plant's productivity goes up as a result of the soil overall being healthier. Uh, so hopefully that helped Infused and answered your question. Uh, feel free to come back up and raise your hand again if you uh, had some add-on or there were some additional points that uh, you wanted to make. Um, happy to have you in the space and thank you for the question. Uh, Her Buds, one of my favorite Instagram and uh, Clubhouse folks, how are you doing this wonderful Thursday evening? Jason, I'm well. Thank you for bringing me up to the stage. I appreciate it. Did you have any questions or comments on carbon this evening? Oh, do I have a question or comments? Um, I just want to say hello to the people in the audience. Connor, Jody, Peter, Ali, what's good? Um, okay, so CO2. I was, when I first came on Instagram, I discovered this company. It was called TNB Naturals. Jason, have you heard of them? Have I you? am aware of them, yep. What are your thoughts? Like, you know, a lot of these companies, they create these products and they- So, they yeah. Uh, um, so I've heard mixed stuff with that specific solution. Um, I have a friend who works at a hydroponics store and when that product first came out, they put some CO2 monitors into a couple tents and uh, did some testing with that product. And I think you do get, you know, a good initial burst of CO2 when you first uh, add the product and first do your first shake uh, or two of that, you know, canister that the thing is hanging. But um, he said that, you know, the longevity of it wasn't great. It didn't seem to last a really long time. Um, so I, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, migrated towards those exhale bags, which are really, again, a fungi hanging in a bag, um, you know, which releases CO2 as opposed to uh, the TNB naturals approach. I think the TNB naturals approach is probably not too much different than the baking soda and vinegar approach, to be honest with you. Um, I don't, you know, I don't... Um, I personally have not used the product and I'm going again off of the secondhand information from my buddy Nick at the store, a different Nick, not this Nick, um, just coincidentally. 
Um, but yeah, Nick had, uh, my friend had, had done some initial testing with that product when it first came out in a couple of different tents and, and he did not see a real benefit from that product, um, after the initial, um, again, the initial pouring of that product into the canister, um, it didn't seem to necessarily last and that daily shaking activity, uh, didn't have a large amount of efficacy after the initial blast. Absolutely. I love when people test out products and just can share the knowledge about them. Um, I just quickly want to introduce myself to the audience. Hello, everybody. I'm Hurt Buds. I'm a cannabis cultivation educator. I teach people how to grow weed. And um, I like a lot of DIY stuff. So going off what Jason said, you know, there's a lot of companies that will come out here and try to take the DIY approach essentially and sell it as a product. Um, I have a recipe for uh, CO2. So all you need is a bit of sugar, a, bit, a little bit of yeast and a little bit of fermentation. And you, you keep that in a warm place at what, 30, 26 to 34 degrees Celsius and just shake that jug and do it for yourself. What we're trying to do in, what we're trying to do in a tent is we are trying to replicate mother nature. Uh, no light will ever do that. No CO2 canister will ever do that, but there are ways around it that you could try to replicate. And, uh, I mean, I'm an outdoor grower. I love a good outdoor grow and CO2 carbon. Yeah, and I, I would definitely, uh, if you all are not already following her buds, definitely check her out on Instagram. Uh, she's had some tremendous giveaways recently too, so real big props to you and all the sponsorships and, and all those great products that you've actually been sharing with the community as well. Um, so thank you uh, for all you're doing. Nick, did you have some comments to add on there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, the way that microbes do it in the soil, and it exchange with plants is oftentimes one of the best ways to supplement carbon. Like with what we're doing, for instance, we, we can tie the fertilizers that we're making, we're tying the carbon to the macronutrient load. And so we're capable of delivering the equivalent of about 3000 to 4000 ppms of CO2, but it's not coming in the air. And so it's not being loaded on the plants externally uh, and allowing the, you know, forcing the plants to internalize that chemistry what we're doing is we're putting that carbon in a reduced form that provides free energy for the plants in the transpiration stream so we're putting about three to four thousand ppms of co2 equivalent carbon inside of the water that way when the plants take it up they have access to all of that carbon and it's already fully reduced meaning that it's not oxidized like co2 in the air is the oxidized state is the least efficient for the plants and requires the greatest energy expenditure so a lot of times when you know, like the TNB naturals, those bottled CO2 supplements, um, yeah, they can provide some CO2 for the plants, but it puts a greater stress on the plant to then process that because it needs a higher reduction capacity in order to take something that's oxidized and to convert it to something that's useful. So if you find a way to um, provide your plants with fully reduced carbon, it's actually free energy for them. It's free because they would have otherwise had to exert energy and time and do work in order to capture that form of carbons. So this, this process of reduction is very important and tailoring it to what exactly you're looking to achieve is also pretty important. Like we were talking earlier about this flavor of carbon deriving from orange peels. We're converting this orange peel 
into like uh, organic acid residues like pectic acid and then complexing them back with calcium so that when your plants get it, they're getting about 100 ppms of carbon for every one milliliter that uh, is being added into the feed mix. They're also getting a specific form of calcium that is uh, sort of very conducive to forming cell walls. It's not like a nitrate. It's not like a, you know, sulfate or anything like that. Um, it's a very special flavor of carbon that allows the plants to recognize that piece of calcium as a constituent of the cell wall. So now when we're factoring carbon into the equation, um, really what we're doing is sort of turning up the appetite and increasing the appetite for the macronutrients of the plants. You know, in other words, if you give your plants more carbon, like more CO2, they're probably going to want more nitrogen. They're going to want more phosphorus. And they're going to want more of these macro elements in general. So tying uh, all of that together, I think, is is or can be tricky for some people. Okay, sorry, I have a question because I don't know everything about this. Um, so outdoors, our plants emit our, our plants emit a lot of carbon, and so do we as humans. Now, when we're trying to replicate that within a tent, a grow tent. Um, you're saying that we can supplement carbon, I guess, foliarly and supplement carbon carbon through water. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to understand and break it down for my damn self. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the carbon that's in the air is CO2. That's gaseous form of carbon. And then when the plants, because the gases aren't very soluble in water, right? Think about hot hot day and having a soda out on the on the counter like the co2 quickly leaves and it doesn't come back to the water so this is the same for plants as if they have carbon in the air in the form of co2 it's a gas but they need to convert it into a form that's soluble that they can put inside some water and then take that water from the leaves through the phloem tissue down into the roots and then that's where it gets exchanged with you know beneficial microbes and beneficial fungi but it's really just the process of conversion to make something that's a lot more soluble and allows the plants to move through a lot more carbon if it's in uh, the form like carbon in the form of sugar will never leave you could have sugar water a solution of sugar water out on the counter uh, for weeks the sugar is never going to leave but co2 in water it's going to leave within a couple of hours and so this form factor that the carbon comes in is very important so if you're just supplementing co2 again it's that effervescent that fizziness that's trying to always leave the plant that's what is going on whereas on the flip side if you're you know quote unquote feeding soil and you're taking care of the soil microbes what happens is you get these soluble flavors of carbon like the sugars various other carbohydrates this stuff is a lot more transferable uh, and a lot more actionable for both plants and for beneficial microorganisms Oh my gosh, Jason, where did you find Nick? Because <laughs> Nick actually kind of found us. Okay. Um, funny I'm enough, him. <laughs> uh, we, uh, Flav and uh, Ali Muffins and I were running a room and, and Nick kind of came in there and, and just blew us all away. And uh, ever since then, we've, we've kind of latched on to him as, uh, as, as one of the tremendous leaders in this space. Um, I think, you know, um, you know, a key, a, a key rule of thumb might be, you know, if, you know, to, to remember would be if you can increase the biological activity of what's going on in the soil, you are in F you in effect, increasing the carbon. Um, you know, you're, you're increasing the amount of carbon that's in the soil. You're increasing because the biology itself is carbon. 
Um, you're increasing the interactions of the biology with the environment around it. You're increasing the ability to uptake uh, you know, these nutrients and carbon and create more structures of more plant and more roots. And, and so um, the way to increase the amount of carbon is to increase the microbiotic uh, activity uh, in my mind. Um, so, you know, not necessarily pumping up more CO2 into the plant, but pumping up more biology into the plant if you're trying to get more carbon in. So I jumped up back up too, because my train of thought went right where yours went, Jenna. Um, because clearly, Nick, thanks for explaining that what you were suggesting is an environment within the fertilizer that you're providing that lends itself to a high availability of carbon for the plant. Um, where my mind went was for folks who don't have um, all the access to um those nutrients and can't supplement carbon. Um, clearly, we wouldn't want to do a foliar spray. I've never had success in under, uh, you know, lights or, or direct sunlight because um, that would be the most productive time for the plant to absorb carbon, it seems. But are there any applications for foliar feed that folks can use as a shortcut? Maybe a uh, feed just prior to sunrise so that it's a little bit of a slow absorption and the plant has kind of dried? Are there any any, any um, surface level shortcuts for carbon absorption? I can't wait to hear your answer, Nick. I literally can't wait to hear your answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's something we were talking about earlier, like the, the artichoke that we're working with, it has this unique fraction of sugars that when you spray it on the plants, it sort of stimulates this phosphorus metabolism so you know the more you can include like molasses for example is a good one or even kelp extracts um and if that's not the case then i would say compost teas are really good too if you can find something even in your local immediate environment um try to brew that up into a compost tea that can be very cost effective as well uh, there are bulk sugar options like organic cane sugar from costco is like 70 to 80 cents a pound um, and i've seen some pretty expensive brands out there just selling the exact same thing and it ends up being like a lot more let's just say a lot more than that oh my little side sugar business is doing pretty well i'm glad you brought it up yeah i think we were also talking about um this is a topic that came up the other day which was molasses using molasses because molasses is not only uh just a sugar but it also has i think amino acids and some other uh great uh, calcium um, and some other great nutritive value. So I'm sure there's a lot of carbon in there, or at least carbon reaction caused by the use of molasses as well. Yeah, yeah, and molasses, you know, if you look at it, there's you can measure the potassium in molasses by the milligram. Maybe it has like 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams of potassium, you know, which is considered high, but it's still um, very, very trace amount compared to how much carbon. It's predominantly carbohydrates, it's molasses, and it's got some of that uh, mineral content left over from the plants. So. That's a really good form factor. I think anytime that you can talk about either feeding the soil or improving soil chemistry, um, it's going to revolve around carbon and getting certainly getting plant extracts involved is a good idea. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we've got kelp extracts that are very familiar to everyone here. Um, certainly doesn't necessarily matter the species of kelp, although some of them do have different effects depending on what you're trying to achieve. But to kind of bring up an earlier 
topic we were talking about earlier with with carbon it's it's not very easy and straightforward like it is with nitrogen you know your plants are deficient you can see that in the color so you add the nitrogen and the color is corrected um, the carbon deficiency is more like turning a barren piece of land into a lush rainforest within 15 years that's got greater biodiversity than any of the rainforest surrounding it so it's it's really complex to try to figure out like what is the specific flavor of carbon and a lot of it comes down to just allowing nature to guide those um, pathways and to dictate it depending on what's happening so if you can find ways to do simple things it typically helps you know diversify the compost teas that you make instead of just using like a green herby herbaceous type of vegetables get some fruit peels in there you know get some bark in there get some licorice root in there get some you know kelp fronds in there get flowers and get pistols get fruits get berries try to just diversify a little bit because as you start to open up what you're putting into the compost tea recipes you're going to find that you're opening up the sort of the pool of carbon that you're giving the plants and giving them the availability of carbon oftentimes allows them to produce like the case with terpenes you know there's 70,000 different terpenes but they all start from isoprene so if you can get the plant to isoprene it will produce one of 70,000 different compounds and i think it's less important to try to figure out what it's going to produce or how it's going to produce it and just get to the spot of being able to produce it you know so so uh there's a lot of back and forth on the youtube and i think just to kind of simplify and clarify um so you know one of the quick questions that came from ian is so is he saying that adding sugar is more effective than adding co2 to the air and i think that um from what we've been discussing i would say uh yes but um <laughs> the reality is you do need co2 as we discussed earlier you can't you know you you have to have co2 as part of the functioning and that co2 and uh, these carbons and sugars and things in the soil are just different flavors of carbons. Um, not necessarily one is better than the other. It's more about using the, the abundance of different types of or flavors of carbon to meet the results needed for that plant. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like the structure and function thing. You know, plants are structured in a certain way. They have this particular function, which is to take CO2 out of the air you know they take the energy from the sun they split a molecule of water and then they've got this chemical energy that they can use to um, fix carbon to reduce carbon so it's never you're never really going to be able to replace that because it kind of defines what the organism is and has been for billions of years um, but what you can do is uh, increase the plant's ability to grow in a 24-hour period of time if you can give it more carbon, you're going to get more biomass because you're going to get more cellulose. You're going to get more pectic acid residues. You're going to get more terpenes and more cannabinoids and things that are mostly carbon by weight if you figure out how to give them more carbon. The tricky part there is that giving them more carbon, quote unquote, doesn't mean let's crank up the CO2. Let's just leave a bunch of CO2 gas in the air and have the plants figure it out again. It's that that soda that's been opened up on a hot day just does a uh, inside of the plant and so if you, again, if you can plants. Out, you can sing to them we emit carbon you got to sing to the, the plants and give Absolutely. them that right <laughs> talk to them sing to them even if you're shouting, right, you're, you're releasing CO2 when you do that. So absolutely spend time with your plants, 
Um, I, I think that's also, I mean, getting back to, um, we were talking about earlier, you know, small tent growers, right? Um, the space, the room, the size of the room that that tent is in is also going to have an effect, you know? So I, for instance, I'm in my basement. So I have two five by five tents in my basement and I can tell you, and I've put monitor, a monitor in my tent to monitor this. It, it is impossible for the six to 12 plants I have growing to suck all the CO2 out of my entire basement. And because I am running, uh, you know, fans that are pulling air out and pushing fresh air in all the time, there's a fresh abundant uh, amount of CO2 in the air. Could I increase that amount and could it have a positive effect? Yes. Do I need to? No, I don't. Um, it's not something that um, I need to do. I think another thing to mention just real briefly is that CO2 also helps um, in some cases with temperatures. And, uh, you know, when we talk about those limiting factors, when you, um, if you increase, if you have, if your temperatures are running higher and you have more light, um, you need, you know, you, you, by adding more CO2, uh, you're helping keep that balance in place. Um, so I know a lot of people use CO2 in large grows as well, not just for the effect of CO2, uh, but also to help with adjusting uh, the environmental factors like heat. It's basically, you guys had a great conversation uh, about enzymes a, a week ago and how they were the engine um of life i think the gentleman that was here described it as and one of the ways i think we can describe carbon is that's the gas or the fuel because the transfer of it is is very important and i've always found it to be a balancing act like you can run hotter with with co2 present you can feed more if you're in a situation where you're not feeding that much, you're not going to need or want as much carbon dioxide and vice versa. Um, what have you seen as a balance or a formula, Nick, that you could maybe share with us? Are there rules of thumb that we can keep in mind um, in terms of fertilizing and that balance with carbon in the air? Well, I mean, rules of thumb, there's like general parameters, I guess you could say. The easiest way to think about it is that plants have what's called a carbon to macronutrient ratio that they're trying to balance out. And even within that, there's the carbon to nitrogen ratio. Um, this is actually the carbon to nitrogen ratio is actually pretty well studied. It's this idea of, hey, as the plants are taking in nitrogen, they want to take in as much CO2 kind of proportionate to that carbon coming in proportionate to that because what the plants are trying to do is combine that nitrogen with just enough carbon to make an amino acid. And so there's this kind of, you know, magic ratio, I think you can say with a couple of the, uh, the elements. And certainly the same is true of soil chemistry too. There's for compost and for healthy compost, there's like a carbon to nitrogen ratio that you want to kind of stay within. Otherwise it, it you know, the decomposition activity tends to be a little bit hotter than what is typically recommended. And you might start to see some adverse effects with the plants maybe getting burned with a compost, like, you know, physically being too hot. So um, that being said, this idea of macronutrient ratios is, is pretty important. So 
what I would say is as you feed a higher mineral load to your plants, if you want to give them more nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, always do so with more CO2 in the air. Or if you have, if you're using like sugars, for example, let's just say it's a simple sugar, you're adding like a teaspoon um, per five gallons. I'd say crank that up too. you know, add a teaspoon and a half or add two teaspoons for five gallons when you start to feed the plants a lot heavier because that giving them that carbon is going to open up their ability um, to buffer out their growth. And so if you fed them a little bit too heavy, if you gave them extra carbon, they're not going to burn. But if you didn't give them enough carbon and you gave them too many nitrates, too many salts, they are definitely going to burn. It's the carbon that makes that that uh, difference overall. All right, so we crossed over the fantastic two-hour mark. Um, we've definitely uh, gone really far down. Um, does anybody else down in the audience want to come on up and add to the conversation? Uh, if not, we'll probably uh, keep it going for a few more minutes here and then uh, probably wrap it up. Uh, Alex, let's see if we can get you on up here. Alex, how you doing tonight? And Michael as well. Doing well, thank you. Um, great conversation. Uh, quick question. I'm curious, uh, you know, I just barely made it past high school. Uh, uh, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. Um, so I have practiced, you know, Jadam, Korean natural farming um, for the past few years. And I'm just curious, is, is that carbon-based nutrient? Is that like you know, the fermented fish amino acid and, you know. Uh-oh, Jason. Jason. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh -oh. Absolutely, right? I mean, we're, Are these we're carbon based. Well, everything we're doing is carbon based, right? I mean, it's it's impossible to not. There's there's carbon in all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're taking um, I, I think there's combinations, right? There's there are definitely enzymes at work and what we're doing in Korean natural farming. Uh, those vinegars are breaking down structures. Uh, so you have amino acids that are also uh, floating around in, in some of those KNF approaches. Um, but yes, you are uh, focusing on feeding the soil, feeding the plant biosphere, increasing the bio uh, activity. Uh, you're increasing the amount and diversity of indigenous microorganisms, of your uh, fungi. Uh, we're very, very focused on increasing the amount of fungi, uh, especially when you're brewing that liquid IMO. Uh, you're making that. Uh, when you start getting into the Jadam side, you start talking about introducing some of the anaerobic functions, anaerobic biology and bacteria. Um, like I love Bakashi as well, uh, using Bakashi ferment as part of that. Um, but again, you're, you're, <clears throat> you're introducing humates, you're introducing uh, humic and fulvic acids, you're introducing aminos, you're introducing enzymes, you're introducing lots of sugars, and you're introducing biology. So absolutely, it is a very much a carbon-focused uh, approach to, uh, to growing plants. Um, you know, all the inputs are based on breaking down these um, 
basically plant materials in many cases. You're, you're breaking down cellulose, uh, like we discussed earlier. You're, you're breaking down the, the fructic acid when you make an FPJ. Uh, so absolutely, Korean natural farming and jadam are definitely uh, carbon, uh, carbon approaches to uh, farming. That's awesome. Uh, that's an awesome uh, crossover there. Alex, thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate the download. Any uh, additional comment on that, Nick? Can I make one? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, For those in the audience who don't know what Korean natural farming is, it's essentially you can use plants to feed plants. It's regenerative farming, right? Like all you have to do is go in the forest, pick up some leaves, add some brown sugar to it, ferment it, and you dilute whatever juices come out of that and and make your own nutrients. when he's talking about something called bokashi, all you got to do is get friggin' newspaper or what's it called? Uh, wood chips, J- Jason? Jason? Is it wood chips? Uh, so, so bokashi uh, usually made with grains. Grains. Um, grains normally, but you can make it with newspaper. I've seen some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a fermentation process. It's taking. It's it's Rice. using. You, you use the rice you well, all you got, all you got to do people is wash <laughs> some rice and um use that dirty white rice water ferment it leave it in a dark place for a little bit of a while i don't remember exactly how much and add some milk and then you create something called lactobacillus and then you just drench your newspaper or rice grains or whatever this is my understanding of it because i'm still learning it and i've been yeah that's definitely a simplified form of making bakashi uh using lactic acid bacteria or lab or um which is which is great Uh, lactic acid bacteria as well as part of um korean natural farming uh, and 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 uh what what you're describing uh taking rice rinse water uh you're basically capturing the starches uh, that are present in rice, natu- those naturally occurring starches, as well as naturally occurring yeasts that are in the air um, that get captured in that process, that water, that rice rinse water. And then you're mixing that with milk, uh, which forms a separation. And you take the, you know, any, anybody who's left milk out for too many days uh, sitting in a room, you see it separates and it separates into the curds. It separates into this kind of yellowish serum. Uh, well, if you if you force that process to happen, and and I don't want to get too far off topic of carbon tonight and get too far into Korean natural farming because I'll go on for hours. Um, yes. <laughs> we'll do Korean natural farming another night. We'll do a grow and tell on Korean natural farming, absolutely, but that's not tonight. Uh, but yeah, no, it's um, it, lactic acid bacteria are fantastic. Uh, are, are great. Um, Bakashi uh, can be made from just lactic acid bacteria, but uh, it, it tradi- a little bit more traditionally is made with a, con- a consortium of different 
uh, biology and bacteria, including purple non-photosynthetic bacteria and uh, different types of bacilluses, not just lactic acid bacteria lactic or lactobacillus, but there's a few other bacilluses and uh, other things that work together in this fantastic consortium. And you sporulate them out on grains. And, and basically what you do is you make this uh, this grain, flaky grain-like product that can be used to uh, ferment food waste and turn it into a uh, compostable material. So instead of using traditional composting, uh, Bakashi composting is a really great thing you can do uh, for if you have an apartment or if you live in a small house and you don't have a big yard, uh, you can actually do Bakashi composting indoors in a five-gallon bucket. It doesn't smell. There's no putrefaction that happens. Uh, it's a pretty awesome natural process. Um, so yeah, I don't want to <laughs> go too far down that route because carbon, the forgotten macronutrient is definitely our conversation for tonight. But uh, yeah, no, thank you for that addition, uh, Herb Buds. We will definitely do a KNF room, uh, maybe next week, because I don't have a specific topic to go over. But Korean natural farming is about finding, uh, utilizing indigenous microorganisms. So bringing those natural occurring microorganisms from your environment into uh, and utilizing them for growing, uh, whether that's indoors or outdoors, it doesn't really matter. Uh, most Korean natural farming actually happens outdoors, not necessarily indoors. And um, you can all, part of that is also uh, collecting plants and other things that are part of your local environment to make inputs for your um, to feed your plants. So you can take. Uh, Comfrey, for instance, and make a FPJ, a fermented plant juice, <clears throat> uh, using sugars uh, to, um, and, and basically after seven to 10 days, that uh, fermented plant juice can be applied. It becomes that veg plant food. And all of that carbon and all of those nutrients and minerals that that comfrey plant had uptaken during its life are now transferred into this liquid, which you are now feeding in a uh, near water soluble format to your other plants to, to grow from. So um, it's taking that plant energy and translating it into your input, which you're then applying to your plant. And so what I love about Korean natural farming uh, and I'm going to cut off the KNF talk right here, is no. that, <laughs> is that uh, Korean natural farming is, um, uh, is extremely inexpensive. You can do it all yourself. You can make it at home. You can feed all your plants, and they're perfectly happy. Um, but what's really cool is most of the inputs you can actually eat yourself. Uh, there are things that you can, you know, you can taste and you, you should taste them and smell them as part of the, it's part of the process. Things that you can ingest yourself that are also good for the plants. So there's nothing that you're adding that can be harmful or toxic uh, that you're putting into your plants, which you also are ingest in, in, in turn ingesting. You know, there's a full cycle. So whatever you put into your plant 
is going to then be transferred into you, uh, regardless of how you consume it. So we have to be ca- uh, conscious of that. I, I'm eager to pass it to Michael, but if you don't make KNF the next topic, we will revolt against you. <laughs> you heard it, Peter. Uh, we'll have to do. We'll have to do a Korean natural farming room next week. Uh, so we'll do a, a basic conversation around Korean natural farming. And I'll try to reach out to a few folks and see if we can get a couple of my fellow KNFers to join us. Uh, maybe we can get Kobe uh, or, or Joe McGinn or some of the other Korean natural farmers who are on here. Uh, some folks who've been in my class uh, classes with me, like Russ, uh, who's a fellow classmate, and um, uh, some of the others. Uh, actually, our our uh, Craig. Craig Trester, who uh, we had the conversation with on enzymes, uh, which Nick wasn't there for, is was also a fellow Korean natural farming student uh, in the same class uh, of Chris Trump. Uh, all those folks are actually at a hands-on class right now uh, in California, learning Korean natural farming hands-on. Um, so they're all they were all making their um, IMO piles yesterday. Their IMO three uh, IMO three piles, and uh, they uh, pulled in the collections that the teams did, uh, so they could look at the IMO ones and IMO twos. But yes, we will do IMO and Korean natural farming discussion next week. Michael, how are you doing tonight? What do you have for us? Any comments or questions about the wonderful world of carbon, the forgotten macronutrient? Hello, sir. I'm doing well. How are you? Wonderful, thank you. Okay, um, I hate to do this, but it's it's about I mean, it wraps in, but it's a little different, I guess. But my question is about uh leaf coloring. Uh, earlier we were having a discussion about it, and I was talking about I was wondering, uh, how much like, like different things, uh, if Nick or you or her buzz could answer like what things you think affect that like could we were uh Flay was talking about a plant that it expressed like a blue coloring uh in a different I know in a different uh like in Hawaii versus it, it, its expression here. And I was thinking and I was explaining like uh, you know, anthrocanins and antioxidant activity and I was wondering is it things that we can do to count kind of, uh, well, I know it is, but what's some examples of ways to kind of, uh, guide that, that experience or that expression rather into the plant? Well, for the pigments in particular, like the purple pigments and the blue pigments that come out, those can be produced in response to the light. And so one of the tricks for indoor cannabis cultivation is conventional lighting, like high pressure sodium, doesn't put off UV light, whereas the UV is necessary to drive the formation of some of those pigments. So that's part of it. I guess the other part too is genetics. Um, genetics factor in pretty heavily because uh, not all plants, like not all purple Kush plants are going to produce purple phenotypes. Some of them are going to be lime green. They may have similar um, like terp profiles and similar cannabinoid profiles. But as far as the actual pigments go, you know, part of it is nature. The other part is nurture. You know, you have to have the right signals coming into the plant, but then the plant also has to have the right sort of instructions to work from. It has to be able to 
put together some pigments that can be used to respond against that kind of stress. Otherwise, the plants, they typically don't do well in environments. So let's say you have a plant that does purple out and you put UV light on that plant and it's going to do its thing. It's going to purple out and then that purple pigment is like a sunscreen. It helps soak up some of that light energy that would otherwise cause damage for the plant. But if you have a strain that does not turn purple like that, then what's going to happen is that strain is going to be subject to that light intensity and that stress. So it's going to want to tap out a lot sooner than a plant that has that kind of you know, built into its DNA, it has the ability to produce those pigments, but it's only in response to the sunlight, if that makes sense. Yes, it did. Thank you. I was just taking notes on what you were saying. And those colors are a function of carbon. Um, everything That's why I said makes, it, it kind of tied in. <laughs> yeah, everything the plant makes is a function of carbon. We got to wrap it back to that, Michael. Absolutely. And, and it's close enough. We appreciate you joining us tonight. Thanks for coming on up. Uh, Matt, how are you doing tonight? Good to see you, my friend. Good to see everyone. Jason, Nick, her, Allie, Alex, Michael, everyone in the audience. Fantastic. Great conversation, Nick. There was an an incredible amount of information in there for everyone um i loved the biochar stuff like one thing i wanted to like add in is like um people shouldn't uh like um misjudge the ability of biochar um there's a lot of people that have you know like tested it and even you know, like picture wise, like one of my favorite ones is uh, <clears throat> Kiss Organics has a picture from their tests from I want to say like a year and a half ago on their on their like Instagram, and they ran the same same like cultivar um, in the same room, and a picture shows you know essentially looks like two different plants. You know, like you have I think it's the right side. I could be wrong, but one side is, um, uh, or like one bed is uh, like filled with uh, biochar and another side isn't, and it's almost night and day. And the, 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 the biochar itself, you know, does matter and like the quality of it, that like the low, the low like temperature um, forms like, Nick was saying with no with no like oxygen um, is like super super important and there's been a lot of like really good research too um, on how the waste alone from the the just like uh, like corn and um, dairy like industry uh could form some of the largest carbon sinks via biochar um you know like in the world so that's like something that people can be thinking of is they have all their waste um you know you can be converting this um and start turning your garden into a essentially a carbon sink by turning a lot of your waste into um 
biochar. And if um, you know, if anyone needs, there's plenty of you know, like research and you know, like PDFs online on on uh, on the production of like biochar the best way. I mean, uh, like I said, the like the process really really matters. But I think like that's one of the biggest things. Honestly, like you know, conversation that wasn't like hit you know like enough is the ability of the plant to um, use carbon um, through the soil um, instead of using gas because there is a lot of people um, that could easily just put some biochar in their soil and the results that they would see I think would be night and day. Hey Matt sorry I just want to touch on this I am like (laughs) I have really big opinions on like companies that uh, our biochar companies because literally all you got to do is go to the forest and uh, pick up some of the the branches that fall off of tree and burn them and blow them out before they turn white because biochar is right right Nick I, I need some support well on- not not um, not necessarily there I mean there is a, like a couple different I mean like there's there's a difference between charcoal and biochar, if that makes sense. And some of it is like keeping, like you don't want you know oxidation in any way. But then also, like at the same time, <clears throat> you want to keep in some of the bio um, like gases as well, which is where like you don't want high temperatures. Like you don't want over. Uh, I mean, like uh, like corn, I think, or the cobs. Like I think the like the peak performance temperatures like 500 degrees if you go more than that you start you know like burning it off yeah um, you're, you're trying to capture um you're trying to capture not just the charred material but kind of the processes that are happening and the changes to some of the chemical makeup as well so um in the case uh and, and not all biochar is the same either so yes uh, thank you for used, saying that uh so uh one of the uh, you got me talking about it again <laughs> one of, one of the approaches in korean natural farming is to use biochar based on sunflowers or asparagus uh because they're very high in potassium and uh so what you're trying to do is you're preparing, you're taking sunflower heads or asparagus and you're putting it into a cast iron skillet and you're covering that cast iron skillet. So you're not cooking it open, you're cooking it closed and you're trying to burn it. Um, and, but you're trying to, as much as possible, keep those, uh, heads, uh, almost intact, um, and, and trying to, capture as much of that potassium and stuff is good you don't want it to uh go to ash or go to the wind you're trying to uh keep as much in there as possible there's um there's a story yeah just just to finish up there's a story about um measuring the weight of smoke um so there was a, a thing many years ago where uh there was a bet and they were trying uh the they were saying that you couldn't weigh smoke. Um, and what they did was uh, basically the guy who argued with them basically smoked a cigarette 
and carefully collected all of the ashes during smoking that cigarette. And when he was done, he weighed it and said, whatever was lost is actually the weight of smoke. So there is a lot of loss of mineral nutrients and uh, stuff that gets uh, lost and, and uh, taken away on the wind as part of that heat and that ash and that exchange uh, that you're trying to avoid in a biochar process. So uh, that's all I had to that, That's I'm done on that. So if you want to jump back in her buds, please go ahead. Yeah, no, it's just like, I'm all about DIY things. It's like, we could do it ourselves, right? I live by a lake and we collect driftwood and we do smudge, we do all that kind of stuff. And I personally think that I can make my own biochar and potentially like break up wood and sell it to people. And I'm just like against things and... You know, I know that you're into KNF. We make our own inputs and stuff like that. And that is just my personal opinion. And Matt, thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate it. No, like, so, so that's why I tell everybody, look at, look at the research, look at the PDFs, because like Jason was saying, not all biochar is created equal. And like, I kind of like hinted at the temperature, the oxidation, it all matters. Like, and, and it all matters even on what you're burning. Um, and there are a lot of good, um, like I've sent Jason this link, her, I can send it to you. There's, there's a few like, um, you know, the like organic libraries even that have some of these um, biochar PDFs essentially from the University of Hawaii and um, a couple other places that have made, you know, like Tumblr like systems that are essentially just like a, like a, it's a barrel, um, um, like with a, it's a homemade design, like you're kind of saying her, that anybody can create that uh, creates the perfect environment for like biochar. So there's like proper ways that people could do this at home. And like most of the schools and stuff that are researching is, or mo like most of the guys, um, like I think is like Professor Alec Cow, the guy from China that was really studying like cobs, husks, and peanuts and rice and stuff, like he was doing it with with one one grad student, and they were going from like you know field to field in multiple different you know countries, um, like testing this um, from like a a kit that they made out of essentially like the back of their truck. Um, which, I mean, it still worked. It was still stable science, but it just shows it's not really, you know, you don't need some crazy lab to create this stuff, but the product, you know, you know, the process does matter, you know, um, kind of in some sense. So. Yeah. So you definitely could do it. Uh, you definitely could take that wood and do that yourself or buds. Absolutely. And I think, um, just making sure that, uh, as, as Matt was pointing to, there's certain temperatures for certain types of ingredients to ensure that you're trying to capture as much of that biomass and that carbon as possible uh, to make those things readily available. Um, and um, I also would be very, uh, you have to be, I'm always cautious of wood <clears throat> that I don't necessarily know where it came from. So if it's you know, driftwood or something you're pulling out of a lake or local, then yeah, you're probably good. But you don't necessarily want to go grab some pallets, for instance, and uh, burn those pallets and then take the 
charred wood from those pallets and put it into your garden uh, if you don't get the right type of pallet. No two by fours. Right. Um, Definitely not pressure treated lumber of any kind because that usually contains arsenic um, or other types of chemicals. Um, so you have to you have to definitely be careful on the ingredients that you're sourcing, and, and I'm always a big a big proponent of that. Understanding the uh, where your inputs come from, anything you put in your plant, uh, in your plant, on your plant, in the soil, all that stuff, the plant is going to absorb it. Uh, cannabis plants are tremendous accumulators, and they will pull it in. And it will become part of their bodies. And when you consume that plant, you will absorb that thing in return. Um, so you, you need to be careful about what you put on your plant. And Jason, I love the like the point that you brought about the sun, you know, the sunflower heads. I'm sure a lot of the KNF like people know about that one, but you know. Biomass in general is, you know, the big point. Woods, woods seem to be, you know, the best. Even in a lot of the data that you know it comes out. Of course, you, you know the the. I think um, in some of the stuff I was seeing, like uh, it was like a marginal, like a quarter to uh, or a quarter to um, half as much, um, you know, like carbon in wood than you'd see in like peanuts or you know some other things, but definitely like these sunflower heads, the stalks, um, you know, like biomass in general, anything that is um, like Nick's saying, you know, carbon, anything that can be carbon, use it. Um, Yeah. And one thing about uh, biochar that I want to say too, like you guys were kind of hinting at the quality of biochar is more or less defined by the absence of oxygen, because if you run a chemical reaction in the absence of oxygen, what happens is that carbon does not oxidize whereas if you burn wood uh just outside regularly what's happening is that carbon is changing which flavor it is it's you know more accurately referred to as speciation of carbon but when exposed to fire that carbon will progressively change you know if you've got a log that's been freshly harvested or even if it's been let's say it's been sitting for a couple of years and it's pine wood it's going to have a distinct color it's going to have a distinct smell the longer you burn it the more plain it gets and the more sort of predictable and uniform its color and its aroma become because the speciation occurs of carbon when introduced to heat in the presence of oxygen. In the absence of oxygen, you get a different set of chemical reactions that unfold because it's high heat. Let's say it's 300 to 400 degrees. That's plenty of uh, heat and enough energy in the equation to start breaking stuff down. Because think about it. I mean, the plant's they're never in their natural state going to experience temperatures that hot. And so the molecules that they make oftentimes break down within <clears throat> normal biological limits and constraints. So if you can have an oxygen-free environment and then you can break down wood in the you know manner of using a 200 to 300 degree oven or something like that, I mean, you're going to get a high quality product because none of the carbon oxidized. None of it was removed from the equation. There's a similar analogy uh, to humic acids in that the best humic acids are the ones that are least oxidized from their parent material. If you have something like lanardite, um, it's been fully oxidized and weathered. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get <clears throat> some level of humic out of it, but it's going to be oxidized and it's not going to have the uh, energy potential 
as something that is not oxidized. And so the exact same thing is true with, um, you know, with the, the, the biochar. You want it to be formed in an environment that is free of oxygen. But having said that, too, you can actually make, there are good forms of, uh, you know, quote unquote biochar that can be made with some, you know, degree of oxygen because oxygen is, you know, technically a fuel source that it does it participate in combustion too. So it, it can have some benefits. It just has to be very uh, closely regulated. Um, oxygen is extremely violent, extremely reactive. So you have to control it on both ends of the equation uh, in order to sort of manifest what, what you're trying to achieve. Hey, Nick, I was curious. Uh, it's like such good information right there. I was curious if you wanted to play around with silicon and kind of, uh, or if you wanted to, like, or if, I mean, I can a little bit, but if you wanted to touch up on like uh, carbonic you know, like acids and organic acids and like cyclic like acids and how like essentially, because like you mentioned at one point, you know, like carbon is the most important thing. <clears throat> and it's arguable that, or it's, I'd say that silicon, you know, is the second most, you know, like important thing because without silicon, there is no life essentially. But, well, yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things I'll try to do, because uh, we're running a little bit short on time tonight, is let me give that some thought because I think I can wrap that into a conversation around KNF, um, you know, the products that were, you know, the products that I'm making, they're, they're, uh, they're based in natural farming techniques. And we've got about four dozen species of plants in the mix. One of them is horsetail. Horsetail produces compounds like organosilicates, you know, com compounds that contain carbon and silica that's been polymerized. And so really with silica and discussing um, either silicon carbon chemistry or silica in living soils, um, it kind of requires maybe a, a different conversation altogether and maybe i can talk to jason about having like a slice of of the the knf conversation be around silica and why it's so important yeah and if if you want any like assistance i would love to like go back and forth with i love i i love silicon and silica and i believe it's one of the most overlooked things and i mean it has been for a long time so yeah, and and you know it's it's uh, it's a possible. What we can probably just do is say, let's go ahead and have a conversation around that in two weeks, uh, so that the two of you have time to uh, put something together and uh, prepare, and we'll we'll have that conversation uh, so that we can just isolate that. Because to be honest with you, if I get talking about K enough, there's not really a lot of room for others. And um, there, there won't be much room for that type of in-depth conversation around uh, silica. If I lots get, of side roads, <laughs> uh, getting into uh, a Korean natural farming discussion, um, that's definitely something that's actually more than a couple of hours if we really get into uh, too deep. So, um, yeah, I think uh, let's plan on trying to set that up for like two weeks out and uh, put that on our calendars and, and kind of plan on that one, having that conversation uh, in a couple of weeks. And I think that puts us, uh, you know, looking at my calendar right now, 
uh, I'd say that, uh, what does that put us at? Um, 30th, the 14th. So it would be uh, October 14th. We would uh, focus on that sounds amenable to you, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. Awesome. Awesome. You up for that, Matt? Totally works works for me. I'll, I'll be around. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, so uh, final thoughts, Nick, uh, before we go ahead and wrap this puppy up and bring it in, because we are definitely approaching that three-hour mark. Yeah, it is, uh, it is getting kind of late here, but I definitely appreciate everyone taking the time to come and listen and to learn a little bit more about how carbon's a macronutrient. You know, just keep in mind that you could take all of the other elements, combine them together, multiply them by five, and high-quality cannabis will still have more carbon than everything else combined. So it's very, very important. And if you have not thought about carbon as a macronutrient yet, then I hope that... Uh, yeah, so uh, awesome stuff tonight, Nick. Thank you again uh, so much uh, for this uh, really fascinating um, topic and again another uh, bringing up another area that we don't usually focus on in a lot of these uh, cultivation rooms and spaces um, so I greatly appreciate you uh, joining us and, and helping uh, orchestrate this uh, event this evening uh, thank you to Herbuds, Ali Muffins, Alex, Michael, Matt uh, for joining us up on stage and fused for coming up and asking a question. Uh, thanks to uh, trucker two times DB drew Jody, Rye, Camilla, grow Kelly, London, Sammy, uh, Stacy, Lamar, Alfred, and all of the crew on the YouTube side, uh, really awesome conversation going back and forth there tonight. And a huge thank you as always to Peter, and the Future Cannabis Project for helping uh, make all of this uh, simulcast and uh, keeping me uh, organized, etc., and, and making all this happen. So appreciate the production, uh, Peter, and uh, taking care of all that back-end technical stuff so that we can have this fantastic, important conversation today. Uh, again, if you haven't already, please join Future Cannabis Project by clicking on the little green house. Uh, follow your speakers, follow the people up on stage, follow the other people in the room because they're obviously interested in the same stuff you're interested in. If you sat here and listened to us ramble on about carbon for three hours, uh, these are definitely your people. So <laughs> definitely give everybody else in the room a follow as well. Uh, and with, uh, with that, I am going to... Uh, close down the room for the evening so thank you again everybody and have a fantastic evening thank you for listening to a future cannabis project podcast for more information about the future cannabis project visit futurecannabisproject.com